everybody. Welcome to another episode of the show. This episode is sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Medicine Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, it's a place I've worked at for a number of years. Uh, and whenever people are asking me where I would recommend to go and do this work of, of plant medicine, of ayahuasca, uh, that's always my, my first answer. It's a place that I, I know very well. I've, I've worked there. I can really attest to the work. And uh, they just hold a really amazing space and create a really amazing environment for people to go really deeply into this work and to really experience uh, profound transformational experiences. Uh, they offer 12-day retreats, six ceremonies, four healers, uh, two or three facilitators, a yoga teacher, and just an amazing support staff. So uh, they, they've been closed for quite a while because of the pandemic, uh, ever since March of 2020. Um, and they are tentatively scheduled to reopen in June of 2021. So if you'd like more information on that, check out templeofthewayoflight.org. Um, also, myself and my colleague, uh, Marav Artsy, who was uh, on, I believe, two shows ago, I believe it was episode number 28, we will also be running uh, dietas or traditional plant diets in the Sacred Valley of uh, Peru, uh, in the town of Urubamba. Uh, we just set the dates for those. Uh, we'll be running, uh, I believe, uh, uh, 16-day dietas um, with the option of doing a, a one-week or a two-week dieta, and uh, we just set the dates for, uh, I believe, March 3rd to the 19th, and then also May 1st to the 17th. So if you'd like more information on working with tobacco, with trees, in this traditional way of, of dieting plants to, to learn from them, um, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and also Marav's website at tobaccodiets.com. All those links will be in the show notes. So uh, that's it for that. And today's guest is my buddy, Brian James. Uh, I actually met Brian working at the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, he was teaching yoga there. I was facilitating. Um, and we just uh, hit it off really well from the beginning. He's, he's a really good guy. I, I really like him. I consider him a friend, a brother. Um, and uh, he has a really deep knowledge of yoga, and yoga is something that I've been interested in for a long time, um, but I've always had a very different maybe view or understanding of yoga than often the yoga that's that's taught in what we would call yoga studios or, or, or various practices that, that a lot of people are doing which are called yoga and and I think it's a much uh, deeper practice it's a much more universal practice and it's something that's at the root of I would say all religion all spirituality um, and and Brian does a really good job of, of of being able to explain that, uh, tying it into its shamanic origins, um, and, and really showing the, the similarity to this work with plants and, and how uh, yoga and plant work are, are really intertwined and, and one of the same thing. So uh, I really enjoy talking to Brian. Uh, he's a really good speaker. Um, he, he has a lot to share. He has a really interesting perspective and, and I think a really important perspective on yoga, on plant medicine, and he's able to really bridge those two topics together really beautifully. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you all will too. Uh, so that's it. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help. Um, with the whole pandemic and everything that's going on, uh, if you're able to support financially, that's greatly appreciated and a really big help to me uh, to help to continue to produce these shows, to bring on new guests. 
the best option is probably Patreon. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, and that's a really good format in that it it gives you something back for helping to support the show. So uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for, and you get things like early access to shows, uh, bonus material, extended footage, Q&As. So it's a, it's a really nice format. Uh, there's also the option of uh, direct donation via PayPal. And if you're not able to support financially, then simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show, uh, turning on the notification bell, liking the video is a, a really big help in getting this show out to a bigger and broader audience. And then for the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, uh, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a review. So if you're able to do that, thank you very much. Uh, to all the people who have supported via Patreon, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate all your support. To all the people who've donated via uh, PayPal, I also really appreciate your support. And I think that's it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Brian James. I'm alive. Yeah. You're, you seem to be alive. Still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, but before we were, we, we just started recording, we were talking a bit about the COVID and just how, how kind of crazy it's all become. Well, that's cool. So, so behind you is, uh, is a Shipibo Tela. Is that, uh, yeah. is that like something special for you that, that particular one or? Um, I've got a few of them. I've got some that are, uh, more, have more uh, serpent imagery and things on them. This one, I feel, just feel like it's classic and it's beautiful. Um, and this particular like Kane pattern is kind of one that would overlay my visions quite a bit in ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So um, just looking at it reminds me of some of those ceremonies. So I like to have these kind of different... Uh, uh, different objects, different things around that keep me connected to those tra- transformative ceremonies that I've had. So it's visual things. So I love the tapestries. I've got um, a beautiful little tobacco pipe here that I got from a shaman oh, wow. in Peru. And this one's really special to me because if you know anything about the history of yoga, uh, Patanjali, who's considered one of the great sages of yoga, is always depicted as half man, half serpent. Um, his bottom half is a coiled serpent and his top half is uh, like a human. And so when I saw this, I've got a tattoo of Patanjali on my arm. So when I saw this in the jungle, um, it was like my two worlds merging together. And uh, it was like the final affirmation I needed that yoga is shamanism and ayahuasca is yoga. <laughs> so I've got all this stuff around and I've got like um, some perfumes from the jungle, uh, Palo Santo, anything to kind of evoke something of those experiences. Um, when I'm here in the North, it, it just helps me stay connected to that. So yeah, I've got stuff all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So we met, uh, we were, we were working together 
in the Amazon at a, at a plant medicine center, at an ayahuasca center, the, the Temple of the Way of Light. Um, and I, I always used to really enjoy talking to you because I, you know, if you remember or not, I, I also practiced yoga for a long time. I mean, I still do. I, I taught for a while. And, uh, when I, when I kind of went through that yoga training, I was always very hesitant to, to do a, a kind of an official yoga training, but the, the studio where I was practicing offered me this opportunity and to teach if I did the training. Uh, but I remember before that I had trained for some time. I had done Ashtanga, but uh, I had trained with this guy, Richard Freeman, and he's a, he's a pretty big name as a Ashtanga yeah. teacher. And I always used to find it so funny and, and kind of inspiring because he's one of the older if not maybe the oldest Ashtanga teacher, uh, at least in the U S and he's not certified. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, it's, uh, and it, you know, it, it's something I, I, I used to like talking to you about because I think yoga is one of these things that's so misunderstood. And, uh, yeah. and even some of our conversations talking about, uh, Krishnamurti and, and it was so funny because we both have a mutual like for UG and, you know, uh, yeah. Krishnamurti right. I forgot that you were, <laughs> I forgot that you're, yeah, we did have conversations, not only the more famous J Krishnamurti, which, who's become like a Instagram and YouTube superstar now, you know, <laughs> but also UG, his lesser known, um, uh, what would you say? Like they were contemporaries and they kind of grew up together and they had a bit of a tumultuous relationship, very similar in a lot of ways, but also UG just got fed up with what he was hearing from Jay. And um, he tells the story of literally, uh, I think it was in Sanan when uh, Jay would be doing these big talks in a giant tent to, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of people. Um, UG went to see him and uh, at a certain point, it's something just clicked for him. And he realized that this guy um, knew how to describe the enlightened state, but wasn't in it. And so this clicked for UG and he said he walked out of the tent and never looked back. And <laughs> that's when he became kind of known as the anti-guru guru, because people obviously uh, turned him into something of a guru or tried to, which he uh, constantly was uh, rejecting and putting back on, on the people. So, yeah, I forgot that we had that point of connection, and that's very rare. I don't often meet people who have even heard of UG, and even less or fewer people who get him, you know, who he clicks with. Because uh, if you watch some of the videos on YouTube, he could just seem like a cranky old bastard. But, uh, yeah, that's some, I actually like that about him. There's yeah. no There's no front. <laughs> Well, that, that's one of the interesting things I found, and it, very much like you were describing. I think uh, that's a perfect way of, of how he put it with Jay Krishnamurti, who I also have a tremendous amount of respect for. I mean, I think he's done a lot of good, but mm -hmm. there's a difference, I think, between someone who's who's speaking very beautifully versus someone who's having a real lived experience. And and I think that lived experience, often it, it can be kind of in this terminology that we're familiar with, it can be very triggering for people because it's often, it's, it's confronting their beliefs, it's confronting our beliefs, and it's saying like, you know, very much in this uh, maybe like Vedic way of, of saying, saying things like neti neti, no, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. And that can be very confronting to people because it's, it's, it's almost in a way like directly assaulting their belief systems. And, 
you know, that's, that's so much of, of who we think we are. And, and I find that with, a, with a lot of these teachers who, who I also have respect for. I mean, uh, someone like Byron Katie, who I have a lot of respect for. I mean, her whole process is essentially like questioning every thought that you have. And in the end, finding out that it's not true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think that UG, his mere presence was triggering for people. And I think that says something really interesting about how we become encultured. Um, you know, he, he was very much in the natural state, which doesn't mean that he was always blissful and serene, but he was in a kind of natural flow with his environment. So he would get angry. He could tell dirty jokes. He would curse. Uh, you know, he was just like in the flow, whoever was in front of him, he would be responding to. Right. And so I think someone in the natural state, when, uh, we're brought up to be kind of so uptight and hold things in and, and follow, uh, societal conventions for etiquette and manners, someone in their natural state can be incredibly triggering to that. So that's going to be, a kind of an attack on our egoic identity. And I think that's what made him so uh, like such a transformative person to be around. And it's, it's not so much what he would say to people, but people who are in his presence. And so, um, uh, an important yoga teacher of mine, um, spent time with UG back in the day. And he also, you know, went and checked out Jay Krishnamurti and, um, so he, he'd tell me what it was like to be in the room with UG. And that was like the transformative thing, not the three hour lectures that he would give on uh, spiritual topics, you know, but it was like being in his presence would uh, break people open and they would either find some kind of freedom or they would run away screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and and so Byron Katie's like kind of similar, although I'm not so sh so sure that she's in her natural state. Um, there's actually a video of Byron Katie going to visit UG. Have you ever seen that? No, that's interesting. It's really interesting to see them in the room together and see how much uh, Byron Katie is trying to prove something to UG and UG is just refusing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing to see because you could see like her kind of her agenda or her need to be acknowledged by him. And he's just sitting there on the couch and there's other friends around and she's like right next to him trying to get his attention and say profound things. And he's just, ah, <laughs> it's amazing. I recommend you, uh, you look it up. Oh, I'll try and find that. It's something interesting I find also with, uh, because I think it's, there's a very similar parallel to, to, to shamans or to, to, to curanderos, to doctors. And, and I, it's something I've seen a lot in my work is, is people come down with this very idealized version of, of who that person should be. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, it kind of from my understanding, from, from what I've seen and, and, uh, I mean, my, my, my experience myself, but also through, through readings I've done and, and just inquiry and into these things, the, the, the traditional shaman, he, he had this duality, which on the one hand, he was, he was very respected because people understood that, that he contained these, these kind of powers, these abilities to, to help people to heal. But with that was the opposite as well, almost a, a fear of, 
those same abilities, because if we have the power to heal, we also potentially have the power to harm. And so uh, archetypically, often the shaman was always living outside of the village. He was kind of a loner, uh, someone who, again, people had respect for, but they, they had a bit of almost apprehension there there was oh yeah. you, you didn't want to get too close to him because there was this uncertainty because with you know with that light in the dark there's this dance and um you know it, it was often like it, people's last resort was to go to the shaman it was like <laughs> oh no i have yeah. to go to him because he, he's the only person left but but you know and and i think that's something really important is is that duality that you know, within the light, there's also there there has to be an understanding of the darkness. There there has to be a mastery of that. I mean, even in the shamanic work, that's you know, I, I think the really powerful healers are not the ones who have avoided the darkness. They're the ones who have gone fully into it. They're the ones who have you know gone into the the power, the the temptation, the jealousy, and and they've actually had to overcome that because often those are those are the most difficult challenges we have to face, right? The the darkness within ourselves. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of long story, but but that's something I, I kind of see in UG is is being able to embody that duality, which which I think is so vital and and something I think a lot of us kind of shy away from. Mm. Yeah, I don't think about it so much in terms of uh, duality necessarily, but uh, embodying a a kind of wholeness. Um, So without labeling anything light or dark, but just being kind of a whole person and having access to a really wide range of uh, emotion and Mm. expression. Um, And I think, you know, the shaman was, was terrifying to people because it also they could also challenge their conventional beliefs about things. You know, I always think about yeah. the shaman as uh, someone who walks with one foot in this world and one foot in the the spiritual world. And, you know, as soon as we open up to the spiritual realm, there is a kind of awesome terror that accompanies that. So whether it's something that's... Um, you know, on the surface, terrifying, like some terrifying vision of a demon or something, uh, or something that's just incredibly remarkable. There is that element of the, the the awesome fear in that, you know, it's like touching the the unknown, touching the mystery, um, you know, what's hidden. Uh, that's just kind of a scary realm to delve into. And, you know, you talk about the shaman being like the last resort for people to go see. Yeah. I think it was the same way um, with me and ayahuasca. It was like out of complete desperation. I mean, like, why else would you put yourself through that? <laughs> something something so potentially awful and terrifying. Um, but, you know, it was kind of a last resort for me. And unfortunately, in our culture, there's no village shaman to go see who you know, you might go see him and he might drink the ayahuasca and sing over you, uh, you know. So we have to kind of like find this ourselves sometimes, you know, when conventional medicines or therapies haven't worked, we're forced to kind of go seek out alternatives. Um, and so that's where yoga and the plant medicine really came in for me, is um, just not finding any answers to the problems I was facing in the self-help books or in the therapy world, not really seeing much of my experience reflected in the mainstream culture. So I had to step out into that other world 
and venture into the unknown and see if I could find some some help or some assistance there. And I did, you know. <laughs> There's some good stuff there uh, if we're willing to venture out. And so even in yoga, going outside of the, the mainstream expression or presentation of yoga, um, you know, it's been really diluted and watered down and, um, and changed quite a bit, actually, to suit uh, the Western mind, the Western needs, uh, the Western concept of uh, what it is and, and what's spiritual. Um, and so part of my journey was delving into the roots of yoga and trying to find out what it was at its source and finding out that it was, it was a shamanic technology, just like ayahuasca or drumming or anything else like that, you know, in this broad term we, we call shamanism. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you, how would you describe yoga? Uh, Cause again, it, it, it's obviously it's a big question, but it's, it's something most people think they, when they hear the word yoga, they think they know what it is. It's, it's going to a class, you know, a couple times a week doing your, your movements, maybe doing some breath work, you sweat, you emerge from the class and usually you feel really great. Hopefully, you know, as long as you didn't injure yourself, you feel really great and, and you keep doing that. And and there's obviously a huge benefit to that, which is why yoga, at least the way it's it's being taught in practice, has expanded so much. But um, I, I, you know, I sense you you have a, a little bit uh, maybe more holistic view of, of what that word or that practice actually means. Well, the more I've gone into it, the harder it is for me to define it simply yoga I, I think like the term shamanism is another very broad term that can encompass a whole range of practices and philosophies so if you start to research into yoga depending on what kind of path you go down you're going to find different answers to your questions and you're going to find different recommendations for what you should do about your suffering so it depends on who you ask, really. Um, so there's Hatha Yoga, which is what we're kind of talking about when we're talking about yoga in the West. So the asanas, um, breath work, which was absolutely central to Hatha Yoga, isn't given so much attention here in the West. It's mainly a, a movement and postural practice here in the West. Even the meditative aspect, which is seen as the highest goal in yoga, you know, ultimately all the other practices are meant to quiet your mind so that you can figure out who you really are beyond the mind. <laughs> That's what all the technology is there for, <laughs> um, to figure out who you really are. So if I was maybe going to sum it up, I would say yoga is a variety of different pathways on the journey of trying to figure out who you really are and what your place is in this cosmos. Um, so, you know, I'm especially drawn to Hatha Yoga. I love the, I love the practice. I love the physical practice. I love the breathing practices. I love chanting, um, everything involved with that. And that's what brings me into a state of clarity. So I guess just by my inclination, by my constitution, I got to do something in order to 
cultivate that kind of state. Uh, I just can't sit down and try to quiet my mind. It's completely impossible for me. So I got to draw on all of these different tools in order to help my, my wonderful creative mind quiet down for a little while. <laughs> so I can take a little vacation from all that um, thinking and planning and creating and uh, just find, you know, what's below the surface, right? So everybody's different. Some people are of the constitution or the mental state where they can just sit down and meditate. You know, they need a little less. Um, some of us have to just do more practice in order to get there. But that's the ultimate goal is to find some kind of clarity. So you know who you really are. So you identify less with the persona, with the ego. So like Byron Katie's whole neti neti approach, um, that's what she's trying to get to really is to help people understand that you are not your mind. You are not your thoughts. You are not uh, what you hold as yourself. Uh, that the world is maybe not as you think it is. So just to question everything. Um, but the, the kind of the extension of that, the thing that would make it yoga is, okay, well, who's doing the questioning? So what is able to observe the thinking mind that can get so confused? And that's like the yogic inquiry is to go beyond the mind is who is the one that can witness the mind? You know, what is that aspect of myself? And that's when it gets really kind of interesting and exciting for me. And, you know, that's that's the big inquiry. And I think, you know, it's a lifelong inquiry. And there's many different ideas about uh, what that witnessing consciousness is. Um, but that's what keeps me interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point is, uh, as you said, kind of like shamanism, it's it's a broad term that we use to encompass many things, but it's not something real in and of itself. I mean, it's not one particular thing and much like yoga. I mean, even, you know, even yoga, I think it was maybe in the yoga sutras from Patanjali where he began to define various types of yoga, but even the ones he defined were just, some of the ones that he was picking out and saying, well, this is one type of yoga and this is another type of yoga and there's Raja yoga and Hatha yoga and Jnana yoga. And, <laughs> you know, each one is, it's his Karma own yoga. And, Karma yeah. yoga. Yeah. Bhakti yoga. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, but again, it's, it's kind of trying to take something that's undefinable and, and, and define it, which is, uh, I mean, it's it's something that's essential to humans is to take that which is intangible and try and somehow make it tangible. Um, so, what was it? What was it in your early process that, that drew you to to Hatha Yoga? Did did you try different types and you experimented and then you kind of uh, felt really drawn to this one path and you began to go deeper into it? Uh, well, you know, in the beginning. So in my teen years, music was my life. I was obsessive about music. It was my spiritual path. And it was also uh, my escape from, uh, from kind of a stressful home environment at times. So I would lock myself in my room and practice like six to eight hours a day. I'd bring my guitar to school. And at lunch, I'd go, rather than sit in the cafeteria, I'd go in a room behind the gym and sit down on the gymnastics mats and practice 
I was completely obsessed. Um, and through that exploration of music, I discovered Indian music and I immediately resonated with it. Uh, I was completely fascinated by it. It was so different from Western music that I'd grown up with and even Western classical music. It's completely different. Um, there's something about it that was incredibly intriguing to me and transporting. Um, at that time, I was also, from a very young age, I was a lucid dreamer. <clears throat> and in my teens, as I started to experiment with drugs, uh, I was practicing a lot of astral projection or out-of-body experiences, um, sometimes with the aid of something like some over-the-counter codeine that we used to be able to get, sometimes with some hash or pot or whatever I could kind of get my hands on or mushrooms. Um, so I was, I was exploring consciousness from a very early age. And you know, I got kind of like hooked on Indian music and the whole like flavor of it. And I got really fascinated with uh, Hindu deities. Uh, I remember I put up these posters of the deities and they were like comic book heroes or something. These super bright and colorful depictions of like Hanuman with his giant muscular legs and his mace like jumping over mountains and completely fascinated by the whole aesthetic of what was... Uh, you know, what I was being exposed to of, of India's culture. And that led me to seek out my first yoga class. And at that time, oh my God, late 80s, early 90s or something, yoga wasn't a mainstream thing. And so in a smaller blue collar town, like the one I grew up in, there were no yoga studios around. Um, but I, I remember finding a poster on a telephone pole I think uh, for a yoga class and it was in like the basement of a church or something and, and so I was just completely intrigued by it and so I went and it was really strange and weird I had no idea what I was getting into I'd had no exposure to asana or anything like that um, but I you know read about yoga um, and so I went and it was like this guy who's probably six and a half feet tall, thin Dutchman who had spent a lot of years in India studying with BKS Iyengar. And he would regale us with stories of India, you know, and as a teenager, I was kind of fascinated by these stories of him uh, talking about going to the bathroom in India and wiping <laughs> your butt with your hand. And I was like, wow, this is wild, man. Um, and like my memories of those early classes were like a lot of pain and discomfort. Uh, you know, I can look back now and understand where he was coming from as a teacher, uh, having studied with BKS Iyengar, where there's a lot of focus on finding perfection in the posture. And Iyengar was kind of a mad genius. And, you know, you hear stories of him developing his approach to yoga and having someone take photographs of him, which he would then overlay with paper and try to see the geometrical precision of every posture. Um, and so this teacher would be like pushing me into these shapes, which weren't natural to me. Um, and I just remember it being really strange, weird, uncomfortable, but also utterly fascinating. <laughs> I had no context for it. You know, I didn't grow up in a spiritual household or anything. So I was just kind of 
wandering through the world trying to pick up all this stuff that I found interesting. Um, so those are my first memories. And, uh, you know, over time, I would go to different classes and just kind of explore. I still had no idea that there were different traditions and schools of yoga. I would just go to class at the YMCA and whoever was teaching was the kind of yoga I got. Um, and it wasn't until probably my mid thirties that, uh, I started to realize that there were different approaches to yoga. And that's when I started to get more serious about practice. Uh, you know, I went through my midlife crisis, which I now think of as a midlife initiation, <laughs> you know, the crisis thankfully led to something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, Yoga was something that always helped me feel better, you know, going to class two or three times a week or whatever, you know, I did feel better for a while after it. So I thought, well, what would happen if I gave this some more of my attention and dedicated myself to practicing more? You know, it was like this experiment, like, okay, I feel pretty good going two or three times a week. What would happen if I practiced every day for a month? Uh, and... You know, I haven't missed a day since, actually, because I found it to be incredibly helpful. <laughs> and then so through that, I discovered, okay, there's these different traditions of yoga. And I eventually found the lineage that uh, really resonated with me the most and started to study with teachers in that lineage, trying to get as close to the source as I could. So that that's something of my experience. But it's really based... Um, so a part of an integral part of the lineage that I found was the importance of having a, a personal home practice. So once I learned how to do that, once I learned how to practice yoga that was right for me, you know, I, I never really went to studio classes ever again. You know, sometimes if I'm in a city, I'll go, if I want to check out a certain teacher I've heard about or something. Um, but that's more kind of a, a bit of an, archaeology or something you know just kind of check out what else is out there what are people doing uh what's happening in this city what's the yoga scene like um but really it's about my personal practice and that's been the foundation of my life for the past 10 or 12 years hmm. and so then how did how did plant medicine come to you you I mean you mentioned you were even at a young age you were kind of experimenting with uh, some things and um, and then was, was, cause I, I was looking at you, you wrote a book, uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, but, uh, I was looking it over and you were mentioning uh, close to the beginning that kind of this important distinction for you, which was working with plants, the, the, the set and setting really makes a big difference and that ayahuasca was maybe the first plant you worked with it was really in this very particular setting that was very mm. ceremonial or ritualistic and that that really had a big impact for you so what what eventually made you made you kind of take interest in in in, in these plants i mean i would imagine some of these early experiences began to shape that but what was it that kind of made you take the jump into this maybe kind of deeper, more ceremonial work with plants. My midlife crisis, what else, you know, it was uh, the early exploration was exactly that. It was just me exploring consciousness, you know, um, you know, 
being always interested in the esoteric and having a very vivid dream life. Uh, I was always kind of fascinated by that stuff. And so, you know, when I was younger, psychedelics were just another way to explore that, like see what else is possible, you know, as a human being experiencing life, like what else is possible? Um, and so I just tried everything <laughs> and it, there was no, I've never heard the term set and setting before. It was you, uh, you got some acid from the guy at the bus station and you'd go to the woods with a couple friends and try it and have some <laughs> crazy, sometimes terrifying experience. Um, so there's no guidance there, you know, there's no internet then there was no, um, Arrowhead forum. There was no YouTube testimonials, all that stuff. You know, what I knew about it was what the little I could glean from some, some books, you know, I remember reading, um, William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg's Yahe letters, you know, when I was a young kid going through all the beat poets and beat writers, and hearing them mention this thing, Yahe Ayahuasca, I was like, this sounds like the craziest shit ever. And of course, Burroughs, well, I think, I can't remember, I think Ginsburg maybe had the more terrifying of the experiences, but they both had these horrible experiences, you know. Um, but again, it was like the yoga thing. It was completely foreign, totally fascinating, and incredibly terrifying, you know, like where we started this conversation, when you start to go into these other worlds. There's an element of terror. And so I was incredibly uh, terrified of the jungle. You know, I grew up in the 80s and it seemed like every other TV show had something about quicksand. You know, we were all afraid of quicksand back then. <laughs> it's kind of a weird cultural thing, but the Gen Xers out there will probably get it because it's like every TV show had somebody <laughs> getting sucked into quicksand. And, uh, you know, Lauren Green's Wild Kingdom, where he's in a canoe with his photographer and a giant uh, anaconda comes and takes him out of the boat. Like I had all these images in my head about the jungle. Right. Um, so fascinated, terrified of ayahuasca wasn't really something I was exposed to, you know, outside of those few mentions in a couple books or whatever. But then I had this, uh, you know, this midlife crisis where I really like woke up to my suffering. I was in my mid thirties. I was doing really well in my career as a graphic designer. I was making a lot of money, um, selling my soul in advertising, um, which is a kind of a shamanic work in itself in terms of working with power and perception <laughs> and influence and things. Right. Um, a lot of shamanism is about the, the show, the smoke and the mirrors. Um, but, you know, I wasn't doing that consciously. Um, but uh, I was really dissatisfied with my life. I was achieving all the success, but uh, I was really stressed out. I was quite miserable. I was, uh, I was drinking a lot to deal with that, but I was having like panic attacks at the end of yoga classes and stuff. Like it was just, I was a mess. There was like so much inner turmoil that I got really desperate and I needed to do something about it. Um, I had been married for a few years and it was causing uh, difficulty in our relationship and I really wanted this one to work. Um, so I did something that nobody in my family had ever done before. I went and sought out a therapist. You know, it's not something uh, I grew up around, the idea of therapy. Um, so that felt like actually a big step for me is just to reach out in this moment of desperation 
and find a therapist. And, you know, I was looking for a special kind of therapist because I'm a somewhat unconventional person, right? So I was there in my office one day and things were really bad. And I was like, oh, I got to do something. So I sat down and typed into Google, shamanism, therapy, Toronto. (laughs) I have no idea why I put those words together, but I got a result back. And I found this guy who uh, was an unconventional kind of therapist uh, who had done some training in the Jungian approach. So he worked a lot with dreams. And he had a mention of shamanism on his website that got me really intrigued. So I thought, well, if I'm going to see a therapist, it's going to be a guy like this rather than some kind of uptight square in a cardigan. <laughs> it's I think you're wearing a cardigan. <laughs> not that, you know, not yeah, you. Just thinking that. <laughs> I got cardigans got a new, got a too. new haircut and a cardigan. And <laughs> well, I know you're not an uptight square. So, um, so I went to see this guy and again, you know, it's funny now that I talk about it, but again, he was in the basement of a big old uh, Polish church in Toronto. He was renting a room there. Uh, so just like the first yoga class, I never actually put that together before. But here we are in the bowels of the church. So there's something symbolic about that too. And uh, I remember going to see him for the first time, opening up the door to his little room. And, uh, you know, he had some like mandalas on the wall, maybe like a, a shaman's drum. He burned this stuff that I was, what is that smell? It smells amazing. And it was Palo Santo. It was the first exposure I had to Palo Santo. And we would sit in this little room and, you know, something would open up. And it was what I recognize now as, you know, something I call medicine space. So there's a different quality to awareness in that kind of space where two people are like just open, you know, when they each have a foot in the other world, you know, and they're meeting there. It's something I experienced in the counseling work that I do now, but I, I felt it there. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was kind of special and magical. Mm-hmm. So we would go into my dreams and uh, he got me keeping a dream journal, bringing that to sessions to talk about them. And uh, it was really helping. It was really helping me connect back to myself, back to the creative spirit that got me started in all the graphic design and advertising in the first place, you know, this, uh, this urge to be a creator. But the problem was I just started following the money and this kind of conventional path of success. And the higher I went up the ladder, the more I became disconnected from what got me started on the path in the first place, right? So I was a bit lost. So this helped me like really reconnect to that. And at a certain point after a few months or so of working together, you know, he'd heard about some of my early experiences with psychedelics. So he knew that uh, I was open to that. And he made the suggestion to me that I get some mushrooms and try taking an an intentional journey with them just on my own at home, uh, but to do it with really some intention. Um, So I did. You know, my wife, Debbie, asked her if I could be alone for the night, and she had a girl's night out. Um, So it was me and uh, my two dogs. 
a bunch of, you know, I set it up, you know, I was like, I'd heard about set and setting now. So I really, really set it up for myself. I had a, a playlist of all my favorite music. I had a bunch of instruments around, just, you know, I had a journal ready. I was like ready for anything. I didn't know what was going to happen. It was the first time I ever actually made the intention to take some psychedelics and sit down and focus in rather than on having this external experience, right? So I didn't know what was going to happen. So I had everything ready and it ended up being just a beautiful, magical night where, you know, I look back now and I go, well, my inner child really came out to play for the first time in a while. Um, so I was playing music. I was listening to some of my favorite songs. Uh, at one point I was playing a little melodica, which is like a little keyboard that you blow into. You hear it in uh, some reggae music. I was playing that and my dogs were howling along with me and I've never heard my dogs howl before or since, but there's something in the air that night, you know, and I was feeling the spirit and they were feeling it. Um, so it was this beautiful, joyful experience. So I went back to the therapist and I gave him my positive report. You know, I brought my journal and went through some of the insights that came to me and, after that, he said, okay, well, you know, there's something else that you could try. But if you're going to come with me, we have to end our, our therapeutic relationship. Because this would definitely go outside the bounds of mm. <laughs> uh, therapy ethics. Um, and I said, yeah, that sounds good. I'm ready to explore more. Uh, so we made the decision to end our therapeutic relationship and start a different kind of relationship. He invited me to uh, the Santo Daimi, which he had been a part of for, I think, probably a few years at that point. So there was a small church in uh, Toronto, and he told me about it. I'd never heard of it before. told me that it's this uh, Christian-based ayahuasca church that... Uh, came out of Brazil in the early part of the uh, 20th century, was started by a, a black rubber tapper who met some indigenous people when he was working in the forest and had an encounter with ayahuasca and uh, out of his visions started this church. Um, and at the time, you know, he told me a little bit about it and he said, I'll send you a, a link to a video tonight so you can check it out, get a sense of what the the ritual looks like and see if it feels right. At the time, there was almost no information on the Santo Daimi anywhere. Um, so he ended up sending me a, a clip from a Brazilian television show that had done a segment on the Santo Daimi. And, uh, you know, so it was all in Portuguese. I couldn't understand any of the commentary or anything. But the images that I saw were of all of these very normal looking people wearing a particular kind of uniform, men wearing these white suits and ties, uh, most people short hair, so very kind of conventional looking people, the women in these long skirts and um, little button up tops, you know, kind of chased, really buttoned up to the top. And But, you know, the women were wearing a sparkling tiara and a, a bright green sash, you know, and the men were wearing stars on their chest. And everyone's playing maracas and singing and dancing in a circle around this central altar that had a cross in the middle. 
um, there was no puking and shitting. Uh, there was nobody losing their mind, you know, like all these reports I'd read from William Burroughs or others. Uh, it was something completely different. Um, and again, it looked very strange to me, but I was completely intrigued. There's something about it that pulled me in. And uh, so I went back and I said, I'm in. What do I got to do? So I went for my uh, intake interview with the, the leader of that Santo Daimi church. And uh, a week or two later, I went to my first ceremony. Um, and it was a chaotic uh, event getting there. It was a whole journey unto itself just to make it out to this yurt, which was uh, an hour or two outside of the city. Uh, all these things were kind of going wrong. I was really ill-prepared. I had no idea uh, that you were supposed to stop drinking and not eat certain things before drinking ayahuasca. <laughs> so we were getting ready to move out of the city. And so I was out the night before with some friends and drinking some beer and <laughs> Woke up in the morning with a hangover, downed like a, a shake and had a power bar and was on my way to my first ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> totally unprepared. I had no idea what you should do, what to expect. Um, and maybe that was exactly what I needed. Um, so I could tell you about that experience, but um, it was, again, just completely strange, out of this world, really difficult. Um, I lost consciousness at one point. I had a second glass because I wasn't really feeling it after the first one. And so I was feeling kind of cocky. I said, oh, this isn't much different than mushrooms. Like, you know, what's all, what's the big deal about ayahuasca? And I think the person who was serving kind of got that sense from me, you know, could maybe see the cockiness and maybe he had something to prove because <laughs> he handed me back this gigantic glass. <laughs> and <laughs> after I took it, it uh, just completely knocked me on my ass, literally. I flew out of my chair and bonked my head on the ground and passed out for a while. Um, but when I came back, everything had changed. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I like to think that um, ayahuasca really had to kick my ass and get me out of my head, like literally knock me out of my head in order to open me up. Um, so that's something of my first experience. I, I write about it a little bit in the book. And what, what do you mean when you say everything changed? Well, um, you know, so I had this whole experience through that ritual, um, this like being thrown down to the ground and coming back to the circle and feeling this sense of welcoming with this group of strangers and especially some men who were uh, next to me, just kind of like helping me out and guiding me giving me this sense of like male mentorship, which I'd never really experienced, but you know, in my heart of hearts always longed for. So there was this kind of opening happening in the ceremony. And I remember walking out of that yurt, looking up to the night sky, and it was like I was seeing it with fresh eyes. You know, I was just struck by the beauty of life, like the beauty and the wonder of life, just how fucking mysterious this whole thing is. And, you know, looking up at the stars, I felt completely renewed. I felt connected to my heart for the first time since I could remember, you know, I didn't even realize I had a heart in the spiritual sense, you know, this um, 
place of, uh, of, well, a sanctuary within, you know, uh, I think of it like the home that we carry around with ourselves, you know, this, uh, this place of just feeling content and at ease with yourself and with the world. I got connected to that and walking out under the stars, I started like crying and like, I'm not a, I'm not a crier, you know? So it really cracked me open. Like it literally cracked my head open, but it also cracked my heart open. And, um, you know, the transformation was like kind of immediate and, and profound after that, you know, after being, uh, quite a, consistent drinker for many years. And this is the culture I grew up in. It was part of the advertising world. Um, the way that you bonded with people was you go out and get smashed after a really long, stressful day at work. Um, so I'd really become reliant on alcohol to help, you know, help me just self-regulate, you know, and for the first time after that ceremony, I didn't have the urge to drink. It was like my whole relationship with alcohol changed after that. So that was a that was a profound shift. But just that whole cracking open and, and feeling this connection to the heart and to the mystery and wonder of life again, it just felt like a complete renewal, you know. So it was a big deal. Big deal. And uh, it was um, it was big enough to keep me going back out of like curiosity of like, what else is possible? <laughs> so I, um, I stuck with the Santo Daimi for, I don't know, two or three years. Um, we moved to the West Coast and there was uh, pretty well established churches in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon was uh, the first place to get legalized use of ayahuasca. Uh, and so I was going to churches in Washington State and Oregon. So doing these uh, Santo Daimi road trips and, uh, you know, uh, going deeper into that work, understanding that tradition more, learning the songs, meeting this whole network of amazing, beautiful, sincere, joyful, complex people who were you know, members of the church. Um, so it opened up a whole new world for me. Yeah, and that, that church is a really interesting phenomena. I mean, it's very Brazilian. It like really embodies, <laughs> I mean, there's the, the, the Portuguese influence of Christianity. There's, uh, I mean, the base is obviously the indigenous uh, ayahuasca use, the sacrament. And then it also, incorporates african spiritism and yeah it's and perfectly even, brazilian like yeah. brazil just loves to mix everything up you know i don't think a brazilian's ever thought about cultural appropriation it's just it's so part of their cultures to appropriate and to combine and syncretize and like you said the Santo daimi is a perfect reflection of that it's a whole mix of all these interesting things that came into Brazil from different pathways. So from the slave trade to the spiritism movement from Europe and um, what was there already in the indigenous culture. Um, it's incredible. It's completely fascinating. And, and so I hesitated earlier when I said it's Christian based because there is definitely that Christian center to it. But there's so much more, and it depends on what church you go to. You'll find different influences more prominent than others. 
So one of my favorite lines in the Santo Daimi that I got introduced to uh, had more of a, a prominent expression of the Umbanda or Candomblé element, which is uh, from the whole African diaspora. So when we talk about Orishas and uh, mediumship, um, that's a big part of that that came into the Santo Daimi. Um, so it depends on what church you go to. There's another elder that I did a ceremony with visiting from Brazil, uh, Alex Polari, who uh, is very influenced by Buddhism. So his ceremonies, there's a lot of just like lights off, we're concentrating. So this real deep meditation with the medicine. Um, so there's all these different flavors, even within that umbrella of Santo Daimi, there's all these different lines who have different influences and expressions. So it it's, in itself is eclectic. Yeah. So then how how did you end up in Peru? Was Was that... Like uh, one of the the following steps is is wanting to experience this other way of working, and yeah. I mean, because you came down also working yourself, teaching yoga. But were you drawn specifically to the Amazon, to to, to kind of the roots of it, to the Shipibo who we were working with? What 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 led you down that road? Um, well, you know, at a certain point in the Santo Daimi. I just got the message that my time there was done for now. I had a very pivotal couple of ceremonies. Um, it was one of these road trips um, where I did uh, two kind of weekends in a row. First one in Washington State in a forest, which was unique because usually it's done indoors with a whole kind of structural setup, everyone's sitting in chairs and all this kind of thing. I started to get really tired of um, being stuck in a chair while on the medicine and having such kind of a rigid structure to the whole thing. I was starting to rub up against me as kind of my growing pains. Um, and, and so I, I went to these ceremonies that were going to be done outside. And I was like really excited about that because, you know, I got to a point sitting in, you know, these legion halls and some plastic chairs where I was just like, God, I just want to fucking sit on the earth and, and drink this stuff, you know? Um, so I was excited about this. And so went to a weekend ceremony first in Washington, outside in the forest, and it was completely different, much more open and free. Uh, of course, you're like really in nature. And that was really an incredible experience. Um, and then the second one was down in Oregon in the high desert, we did a, a ceremony uh, at sunrise in a caldera, which is like a crater. So we're set up in a crater and pre-dawn so that when the medicine starts to kick in, the sun's just coming up over the edge of the crater. <laughs> and we're kind of seeing the sun up in this incredibly alien landscape. And between those two weekends, I went through a really incredible process that I haven't talked about too much. Um, it's a, kind of personal and it's a long story. But some things that had been within me for about 20 years uh, came to a resolution. So incredibly pivotal experiences for me. And after that second one, I remember going to the next um, ceremony 
in in Seattle. Uh, so I'd taken the ferry over from Canada to go to this ceremony. You know, it's kind of expensive. It's time consuming. Staying at my friend's place. And when we were getting ready to go to the work, I just felt this no inside of me. You know, I was all dressed up, had my stuff, my little, you know, bag of shamanic goodies and everything ready for a ceremony. And uh, we're getting ready to go to the door. And I was like, I'm not supposed to do this one. It was just a no for the first time. It was more than the, the kind of nervousness I might have felt before in other ceremonies. It was like a really clear no. And so I stopped going to ceremonies for a while, a couple years. Um, and then at a certain point, there was like something calling to me again. Uh, you know, and it comes to me first in dreams. I started having dreams of being in, in ceremonies, but different kind of ceremonies, ones that had much more kind of darker feeling to them, more earthy, more jungly, for lack of a better word. And I started to get really interested in the, I don't know, I don't want to say the more traditional use of it, um, but... Uh, you know, drinking in the jungle, let's just say that, um, in that context. And so I just started to think about it and think about how I could do that. You know, uh, where should I go? What, uh, what tribe should I drink with and all this? So just kind of looking into all that. And I found, um, the Temple of the Way of Lights website. And I was interested in them because they were the only center at the time, I think, that I had read about who was focusing on the whole preparation integration. So looking for this like before and after care, so really supporting people through that and not just kind of giving that lip service, but they really seem to be putting a lot of uh, time and energy into giving people the, the best experience. Um, and so reading about that, I read about uh, Tanya Mate um, becoming the integration director. So, well, they're really taking this seriously. Um, she was at the time the daughter-in-law of Gabor Mate, a, a prominent Canadian who everybody out there has probably heard about. But uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, if she knows Gabor and has trained with him, well, she probably knows her stuff, and so it seems like they found a good person for this job. So I was like, I was really intrigued by that place. Um, and then I was, uh, I, I can't remember, I think I sent Tanya an email. And then I ended up doing a yoga workshop over in Vancouver. And she came to my workshop. And so she got to see me in action, you know, <laughs> talking about yoga, uh, sharing practice with people. And um I guess she liked it. You know, she had a, she enjoyed it. She enjoyed what I had to say, whatever. So we talked afterwards and, um, the, the idea of going down to the temple of the way of light and teaching yoga came up. And I said, if you want to do it, I could put in a word for you and all that. And so next thing I knew, I'm talking to, uh, Deb at the temple and she's organizing to have me come down for a month to give it a try. Cause at that point I'd never been to, um, South America. I'd only been down to, uh, Central America. I was still a little nervous about the jungle. Uh, I still had those memories of quicksand and cobras and snakes and all that stuff. Um, but I was like, I don't know, I'm just feeling the call. And I definitely was feeling, um, 
really excited and passionate about bringing yoga into that world because for those years, uh, you know, getting serious about my yoga practice, going deeper into this plant medicine work, um, I saw how they really complemented each other. You know, my yoga practice was, I think, helping me have more beneficial ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, as a kind of preparation and way to integrate the experience. And in the ayahuasca ceremonies, I was learning so much about the deeper aspects of yoga. Um, you know, I was learning about like energy as a tangible thing that you can influence and which in turn has an incredible influence on the state of your mind and your health. Um, so these deeper aspects that uh, it can be hard to find teachers who really understand that stuff, you know, who have gone deeply into the energetic practices of yoga. But ayahuasca is teaching me so much about that, you know. Anyone who's sat in ceremony uh, with ayahuasca or, you know, maybe they've taken mushrooms or whatever, but I'm sure everyone out there has had that experience knows how important the breath is to having um, a good experience uh, or to supporting yourself through a difficult experience. Uh, the breath is such a key. And, you know, you start to understand the relationship between the breath and the mind, and the, the relationship between your posture and the way energy moves through your body because you become so sensitive on the medicine. You can actually feel how energy currents are moving through your body. At least I could. And so that was, uh, you know, helping me go deeper into the yoga and getting me curious about the roots of yoga. So the prospect of bringing yoga into that context uh, felt right to me and felt like the, the next step for me in my development as a teacher. So uh, I went down to the Amazon and I got to say the I mean, I just love the whole experience. Getting to Iquitos, I was like in heaven. I love the madness uh, and boisterousness and chaos of Iquitos. It's some place that will always be dear to me. Um, I loved it. And then getting off the, the boat to go to the temple to do that walk through the forest, I had none of that fear that I thought I would. I felt so at home as soon as I stepped into that jungle, it shocked me because <laughs> I was fully prepared to be like, oh my God, don't, don't reach for a branch. It could be a snake and like, ah, you know, watch over the quicksand. Um, but I didn't, I felt so at home there. I was like, oh my God, should I get like giant rubber boots? There's going to be snakes everywhere. And like, no, I was like happy and flip flops and just, you know. <laughs> Um, walking through that forest, there's, uh, there's something about that on your first arrival to the temple, you know, going down this river from this crazy city, going more into, um, wild nature, um, and then getting out and walking through this forest, passing the little tiny settlements along the way, these friendly brown people who, uh, you're everyone's amigo down there, which was, uh, kind of a shock to a northerner. You know, you pass a stranger on the path and it's always hola amigo and a smile, you know, and I love that. And uh, getting to the temple, um, there was nobody there. It was like, it's kind of a chaotic place in itself, right? Like sometimes things aren't so well organized. And I think, you know, now that I've been there a couple of times, 
when I arrived, it was one of those periods in between retreats where a lot of the staff like goes to Iquitos to get their nails done and to eat some different food and stuff like that. Right. So I got there and it was like totally deserted and I have very little Spanish. So talking to the the guards wouldn't get me anywhere. They just saw this guy with these bags and just like kept pointing down other paths. <laughs> so I'm wandering through the center, which was like much larger than I could have imagined all these winding paths through the jungle and everything. I'm just like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and eventually this, uh, this brown guy comes out of a little hut or something. Uh, I can't remember how it went, but it was like, hey, who are you? <laughs> he spoke English. I said, oh, I'm Brian. I'm a new yoga teacher. I'm supposed to meet some people here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was someone that you know, one of your tobacco buddies, right? Um, and the first thing he did was, oh, come on, there's nobody here, but I'll, I'll show you around and show you where you could put your things and everything. And he said, uh, you ever smoke mapacho? <laughs> I said, no, what do you mean? He's like, tobacco, man. I was like, well, you know, I used to smoke, but I quit years ago, right? He's like, well, this isn't like those cigarettes, man. This is mapacho. It's jungle tobacco. He said, you should smoke some. I don't know. I was a little nervous about like getting back into the smoking habit, but you know, he brought me to uh, his little hut. looked really homey. Uh, he was living there with his girlfriend Jen, and uh, you know, we sat down. I'm sitting there. I'm going, yeah. You know what? I'll, I'll take one of those mapachos, right? So he's like, ah, and um, I smoked my first mapacho sitting there in that little hut, and just kind of like started to settle in a little bit. Started to feel the place, you know, and feel how things were different here. Um, again, like conventions out the window, you know, you can like really allow yourself to drop into a more natural state in that, in that kind of environment and that kind of place. So I started to just relax into it. And um, yeah, that first Mapacho, man, I'll never forget it. And, you know, as we're smoking it, he also, uh, introduced me to the idea of drinking tobacco which is something i don't think i'd ever heard of before uh, he says you gotta come uh, drink tobacco sometime <laughs> i said why he's like y'all puke your guts out <laughs> i was like i don't know if i want to do that <laughs> sounded kind of macho <laughs> but anyway that's uh that's the story of me arriving at the temple and so i i um i taught for a month there for one of the longer retreats and it was one of the most fulfilling teaching experiences of my life the ceremonies were amazing i loved the shipibo or at least the way the shipibo do ceremony at the temple which i know might be a little different from how they do it at home but i love the the music you know being a musician the singing just completely blew me away uh, Santo Daimi, you know, we sang a lot, but they're very different kind of songs. They're like kind of folk hymns type songs, you know, can be very beautiful in, in ceremony. But this was completely different. This was like ayahuasca music virtuosos, you know, these were, I'd never heard voices like this. And uh, the effect that it would have on me in or out of ceremony was astounding. Um, I stayed in the hut, which is right above a maloka. So even in the off nights when I wasn't in the ceremony with my group, I'd be lying in bed as the ceremony started. And this maloka, I remember lying there in my little, my little tambo, 
and thinking of this maloka as being like a giant speaker cone and I'm above it and hearing these two intertwining voices, the male and the female, um, piercing through the jungle night air and right into my bowels. <laughs> mm. So I would start to feel like I was in the medicine space just listening to this stuff. And then being in the maloka and having it filled with that sound was uh, incredible. Incredible and overwhelming, awesome, wondrous, uh, terrifying at times, um, but incredible. And then teaching in the mornings after ceremony, people were just so open and attuned to the subtler aspects of themselves that for the first time, I didn't feel like I had to do some like deconditioning around what people thought of as yoga and what yoga was all about. They were just so completely open and receptive to it to the finer points of yoga. So getting into the subtleties of breath and the relationship between breath and body, they just got it. Uh, and so it was easy and it felt so natural and good. Like chanting uh, Vedic mantra in a maloka was like homecoming for me. I was like, ah, this is like, this is what it was like for the rishis, you know, the old yogis who were a lot like shaman, you know, living on the outside of town, unkempt, a uh, little dangerous, you know, people really uh, wary of them and their powers. But they would also be the ones that they would go to when they wanted uh, some secret knowledge, you know, or they needed some healing. They would go to the rishis and the rishis would receive these mantras and recite them. Just like the Shipibo receive these songs and recite them. So uh, the connections between the two just became even more solidified, if that's the right word. I just saw that there was no longer any difference in my mind between yoga and shamanism, and particularly ayahuasca shamanism. I just saw so many similarities between uh, how the Shipibo worked and what the goals of the work were, how they contextualized it, and what I saw in the Hatha yoga tradition, especially like tantric Hatha yoga, uh, the kind of pre-religious yoga before Hinduism co-opted yoga. So before the deities, we were chanting to the nature spirits, to the sun and the moon, um, and to the Gandharvas and the, the Nagas, the cosmic serpents, and, you know, all this weird, mysterious stuff that you see in in uh, shamanism it's just all there in yoga if you go back far enough like the, the the distinction between yogi and shaman just completely gets uh blurred for me at a certain point you know so i know i have to keep kind of um qualifying it you know by saying like a shamanic approach to yoga or the yogi shaman and all this stuff but really if you say yogi you're really talking about a shamanic person. It's that same archetype. But what we think of as yogis, like, you know, we talked about earlier, it's someone who's like living a very clean lifestyle. They're calm and they're centered all the time. And all. No, they were wild, natural people, you know, <laughs> like really like engaging 
with the forces of nature in a deeply direct and intimate way, you know, where they started to understand that the body, their whole, the whole system, right? So the body, including the mind and everything else, was a microcosm of the macrocosm, you know? So we do the ritual inside, you know? And so all the Vedic rituals, which were external rituals, got internalized by the Hatha yogis. So instead of drinking the Soma, they access the soma within through these practices, you know, so it, uh, it's fascinating to me, you know. Well, you mentioned, um, I, I thought it was really interesting and in, in close to the beginning of your book, you, you included this, uh, this chapter from, from the Yoga Sutras, which again is this kind of foundational book of, of yoga by Patanjali. And uh, it's this really good quote. I, I think it's uh, chapter 4.1 where they say that this, the cities, which, uh, which are often translated as to like these, these supernatural powers. But again, when you look at the etymology of that word, <laughs> it actually means perfection or attainment. <laughs> so it's saying, you know, perfection or attainment arises uh, from, from, from birth through through mantra through through sound or through chanting through and again th these words are a bit difficult to to translate but you know that's yeah. the, the mantra the the tapas the the going within uh and then also through aushadi which uh, translates to plant medicine <laughs> so you know it's so yeah, fascinating well, and Plant medicine ahead. from the Ayurvedic perspective, but also you'll see it translated or interpreted in different ways. So magical plants is another translation or interpretation of it. Uh, plants that have been sacralized mm -hmm. or purely medicinal plants. And we look at those different ways of viewing Oshodhi. It's much the way the, the Shipibo or the Mestizos talk about ayahuasca. You know, it's a teacher, but it's also a healer. So it's a medicine, but it's also, um, it's a teacher, right? Um, yeah. So to me, Soma, Oshodhi, is very much like ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is probably the closest thing I've found to how Soma is described in the Vedas. You know, you look at the, the effects of it, um, connecting you to God, uh, uh, healing you, um, longevity, sense of power and strength, you know? So like these shamanic aspects of healing, knowledge, and power uh, are all there in the yoga. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I find it fascinating because, um, you know, I think sometimes these things are overlooked and, you know, this this passage where it's, again, it's pointing to these things that are very universal, you know, this idea of going within, the idea of working with sacred plants, uh, the, the, the idea of, of attainment, even the word yoga, uh, it's often translated as, as union, or one of the earliest definitions of yoga was the, the calming of the waves of the mind. Um, and yeah, well, that's more describing um, what makes yoga possible, right? Mm -hmm. So first you have to quiet the mind in order to see what's beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. So it's yoga, chitravritti nirodaha. So yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Tada drashtuhu svarupe avushtanam. So that the soul can be revealed. Yeah. And at this moment, this moment of yoga, 
There is no confusion about who you really are. At all other times, there's confusion. <laughs> mm-hmm. So whenever the mind is working, we're always can get confused about who we really are. Uh, it's only when the mind is quiet that we can see through and see, oh, there's something else, you know, and, and in uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he calls it the drashta, the seer. So the seer within, elsewhere called Atman or Purusha. Uh, but I love that, the seer. So the aspect of us that can witness the mind, right? So the mind isn't able to look at itself. The mind can fracture itself and into different parts. But there's always uh, a aspect of us that can observe that so even if you have this conversation between like your inner critic and the part of you that wants to go out and write the book or whatever and the part saying no you can't do it so even the part of you that can be aware of the conversation happening so the kind of trick in the yoga is to you know recognize that you're thinking and then do this move where you kind of turn inward at the same time, looking from within and go, ah, there's a part of me that's able to witness all of this right now from a more objective place, just to observe. So if there's a judgment that comes up, well, that's probably another aspect of your mind being engaged there. But what you keep going back to what is the part that's even able to witness that? Um, Yes. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but, uh, you know, I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) So yes, yoga union, right? So if we take that definition, um, so Patanjali throughout that text says yoga is the stealing of the fluctuations of the mind, but he always, you know, a part that's never talked about enough, I think, is what comes after that, the next two sutras, so that the inner seer can be revealed abiding in its true nature. All other times, there's confusion. You know, I never hear anybody quote that uh, sutra, you know. Um, And then in other places, he recognizes that inner being as being, you know, the kind of individualized aspect of the universal. So the Purusha is, I think it translates to something like the great, the great one. So it's like the cosmic soul, and within each of us, there's uh, there's a part of that. You know, there's the Atman, the kind of individual soul, and the Para Atman, the great soul. So there's all all these different words used pointing to the same thing. Mm. Uh, but I love the the seer because that really gives me something to work with. You know, soul is such a ephemeral idea. You know, it's really hard to define the soul, like. We only know soul when we feel it, you know? It's like we know soul music when we hear it. We know soul music when we eat it, right? We know when something is speaking to our soul. You know, we get a sense of that. But if you're trying to describe uh, the soul in any definite terms, it's really tricky. So in um, the Indian tradition, there's all these different names for it. It's like all these different fingers pointing at the same moon. Right. But it can yeah, be confusing and, and, to people. So just to say that it can be very confusing to people. Part of my journey is try to uh, make it more understandable and relatable to people. So excuse yeah. me when I go into teaching mode. <laughs> I know you don't need to hear any of this, but maybe someone out there, it helps them. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that, those are, those are the things I, I find really fascinating. Yeah. They, um, I'm super happy you're sharing those things. I mean, I think even that word city, it, it's been a while since I've studied, but you know, that idea of attainment or, or perfection. And I think even maybe it's in the yoga sutras where he lists, uh, I think it's eight cities. Oh, more than and, that. There's a whole yeah. chapter just listing the cities. Yeah. Uh, again, something that often overlooked in uh, Western yoga. Um, people love to talk about like the first two chapters of the Yoga Sutra because it deals with, um, you know, what is the state of yoga? Uh, how is the mind constructed? You know, what's the cause of our suffering? Second chapter is all about practices you can do to help relieve some of that suffering, find a state of yoga. And then there's this chapter. They just list all of these incredible, you know, so Siddhi, like you said, can be interpreted in different ways, meaning attainment, power, supernatural. People would put that onto it. So maybe some of the more orthodox people would say, oh, these are kind of dismissively uh, supernatural powers. And what I would always hear was, well, yes, there's all these supernatural powers, but you're not supposed to pay attention to them. They're just a distraction from the real goal. Um, it doesn't really say that. In uh, Patanjali never says that. He never says, uh, beware of these cities. If, if there was such a problem, why would he list them and teach you how to attain the cities? So he's not just saying uh, that, for instance, one of the cities... So these are uh, powers, but also insights into the nature of the self and the world. Okay, and so it's like that shamanic idea that through secret knowledge, we gain power. Right? So if we understand something about the universe, we might know how to influence the universe. If we understand something about ourselves and ourselves as microcosm of the universe, then a transformation that... Um, that we catalyze within may have an effect on the external world, or at least on a relationship to the external world, which, as we know, you know, I think you're a Buddhist uh, or studied Buddhism, you know, the mind creates the world, you know, it's all about the quality of our mind uh, changes the perception of the world, right? Colors our perception of the world. So in a way, changing ourselves does change the world, at least our view of it. So one of the siddhis, for instance, um, he says that uh, through samyama, which is uh, a meditation on the sun, we'll know the movement of the stars. So, of course, if you sit and meditate looking at the heavens, you're going to start to see patterns emerge. So the first astrologers, you know, what were they doing? They're using this human ability to turn your head upwards and, and gaze at the stars and then to attempt to understand what you're seeing. Um, uh, samyama on the heart, you know, that inner self teaches you about how the mind works. So you do a meditation on your heart, you start to see things from that deeper perspective. So you can see the mind working, see how the mind gets so confused. Like that experience I had in the first ayahuasca ceremony, like really being connected to my heart to this other kind of awareness within me, you know. Uh, and I could start to see how it's creating so much of my own fucking problems all the time. <laughs> and that if I did something about this mind, you know, uh, 
understood it a little more, understood that it's not who I really am and that I can change the state of my mind at will using these tools, whether they're breathing practices, movement practices, mantra, meditation, ayahuasca, <laughs> ashadhi, that I could change my mind. And that changed everything. Um, so the cities, yeah, it's really like, it's a power that comes from a deep insight into the nature of things. And some people are just born with it. That's the, the first line, you know, you can, uh, you can get the cities through birth. Well, sometimes there's a born yogi, you know, every uh, couple thousand years, <laughs> the universe pops one out. <laughs> or, thank God, <laughs> there's hope for the rest of us. <laughs> you can do some tapas. So you could, uh, so a kind of tapas would be anything that increases kind of the spiritual heat. So anything that turns up the heat in your spiritual practice, so intensifies your focus and intention, right? So it could be fasting, like you might fast before an ayahuasca ceremony, um, you know, intensive uh, austerities of any kind, really. So you're doing a practice every day, a really dedicated practice. That's going to turn up the heat, you know, and cook away some of that shit that's uh, blocking you <laughs> from seeing how things really are. Um, chanting. Chanting is the one thing that always does the job for me. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a musician or what, but uh, I find, you know, when I share chanting with other people, that they really feel it too. Uh, something about it engages our whole self, you know. So when you're doing asana, yes, you're working with your body, your breath and your mind, not really using your voice though. And there's something about this extra element of vocalization, of expression, um, that, yeah, it feels like for me, it's using my whole self and like bringing all of the threads of myself into one thread. So it's really an amazing way to like focus myself. It snaps me out of, you know, overthinking or depression or whatever is going on in the mind, it snaps me out of it just like this. At a certain point, Patanjali says, you know, he's talking about all these practices, like he said. He says, well, there's Ashtanga Yoga, there's Kriya Yoga, there's all these kind of different ways to get to that state of yoga. At a certain point, he says something like, um, if all else fails, chant Om. <laughs> Which is kind of the way it's worked for me. So there's, yeah, the chanting and then, um, you know, meditation, which you can do in any number of ways, or using the plants. But um, nobody really pays much heed to that. You know, I think that comes out of a kind of uh, uptightness. Um, you know, how uh, religion co-opted yoga and tried to, like, clean it up. You know, we see this in the language of someone like Vivekananda, who was one of the first Indian scholars to come over to America and present yoga at the International Conference of Religions back in the late 1800s. You know, he was very disparaging of Hatha Yoga, the kind of attitude was like Raja Yoga, this yoga of the mind, Patanjali's yoga, is the way, it's the royal path. And all that other stuff is like kind of for the, you know, the dirty Hatha yogis. You know, there was this uh, kind of, um, I don't know, conservative, uptight view of the body, that the body is dirty. It's just basically, you know, it's described in some of the text as a, a bag of shit and pus. You know, it's really, they had a real disgust of the body. Uh, but in you go back beyond that in the original Hatha Yoga, you look at the Tantras and it's like 
all about experiencing life more fully through this embodiment. So through through sensual pleasure, through sex, through drugs, through alcohol, through whatever. It's like being open to life and wanting to experience it at its fullest is, is the path, right? So not being an ascetic, not hiding yourself off in a monastery or cave. I think that was really the great innovation of the tantras because uh, tantra emerged at a time uh, in the medieval period. And you look at the early texts and they say, you know what, this other way of getting there, this other way of yoga where it's all about renunciation and asceticism, it doesn't work anymore. This is Kali Yuga. We need something different. You know, people are different. The world is different. So we need a yoga that embraces reality. Uh, and it's about getting out of that conditioned state. So it's like really about finding moksha or freedom. So like, you know, early we talked about UG and what it was like to be around him. You know, my yoga teacher said it was like being in the room with a cat. He said it was just there. It had no agenda, you know, <laughs> didn't really give a shit whether you came or went. It was like fine on its own. <laughs> and yeah, it might enjoy your company, you know, if you're an entertaining person and it might swat at you if you're a pain in the ass, you know, so very much like that, you know like in the world and of the world, but uh, knowing that you're not, <laughs> that's not all you are, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the really fascinating things. And uh, as I'm sure you've seen from your experience of working with others, sometimes there's this language when, when one begins to work with plant medicine where it's very difficult to put these things into a language because as you said, a lot of these experiences are beyond the mind. So the mind can never fully describe them. And, and it, I mean, that's really the essence of, of all of these esoteric traditions. You know, when you, when you entered the, the temple of Delphi at, at Apollo, uh, the, the, the first thing you saw, or sorry, the, the temple of Apollo at Delphi uh, was know thyself. And, you know, as you mentioned, this, this idea of, of soma, this, this sacred plant mix that, that allowed one to, to know thyself, to experience something. And what's, I think, also so fascinating, even about the Vedas, which are this, this oldest knowledge that's been passed down, is at the end of the Vedas, it says, or so this is what the ancient ones told us. <laughs> It's like, wait, but you are the ancient ones. So there was someone who came even before you who was passing this knowledge down. And, you know, I mean, even in Zoroastrianism, uh, there's Soma, but it's it's called Homa because Homa, they, yeah. they didn't pronounce the S. They pronounced it like an H. And, I mean, I think these things are seen all over the world. I just finished a really good book called uh, The Immortality Key. And... Uh, it, it was something that, that I had thought a, a lot about, and, and this guy's really beginning to do a lot of really interesting research, is, is that also, which would make sense, <laughs> the origin of Christianity is also these same practices, these same ritualistic, somatic, sacramental practices that allow one to experience Christ, and, and not Jesus Christ as in a man, but Christ, a, a consciousness, a knowing, a, a self-knowing. And, and that's what I find so fascinating, what you were saying about the cities, right? Because it's, it's this attainment, but it's an attainment that comes from some 
something we've done that allows us to experience these things. Like I remember one of the, one of the, or two of them were something like to, to shrink oneself down smaller than an atom. And then the other is to expand oneself as large as the universe. And, and I think, as you were saying, these were taken to be like, well, literal things. Well, if you could do that, you would have these crazy powers to be able to influence other people. And it's like, no, that, that's not what they're talking about at all. And, you know, many people under, uh, let's say, a plant ceremony very well may experience that. You know, this oh, idea yeah. that, 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 that there is no me or, or me is as great as the universe or as small as the smartest particle. That's also, there's there's this interconnection there. So... Yeah, on one hand, uh, imminence. So something like what Jeremy Narby discovered and wrote about in Cosmic Serpent, that uh, resonance between DNA strands and the serpent imagery that we see in all of these traditions, right? So getting as small as an atom, having the experience of what it's like to be an atom or a DNA strand. And then the opposite of that is that, uh, so there's imminence going within, getting small and small, 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 right down to the core. The other one is the expansion or transcendence. So having that unity experience that so many people talk about on uh, high-dose psychedelics. Uh, That's what they're talking about. It's the insight. But like you said, people who don't know take it all literally. And then they they kind of fuck it up, you know, because then they make it a bad thing or a thing that's just a distraction. When really, uh, it's more of that that tantric perspective is like, let's explore the fullness of life, you know, like, let's, because if we know that it's possible to have the experience of an atom, or to have the experience of being the cosmos, well, does that give you a different perspective on uh, your jealousy over that person's Instagram feed or what? You know, something to break you out of that small, dumb mind, you know? And so there's many things, you know, some yama on an elephant will give you some of its strength. Well, that's a completely shamanic idea that by really trying to become one with an animal, uh, it can impart or we can invoke some of its power into us, even if it's just a feeling, you know, and, and many of us have had this experience with psychedelics. It's like you become like a, an eagle or a jaguar or uh, an ant, you know, to feel the strength of an ant, this tiny thing that can lift like a thousand times its weight, you know. Many of us have had this experience. And once you've had that experience, there's no going back to conventional limited ways of thinking about what's possible in the world. And that that gives you a taste of freedom, you know. It lets you know that there's so much more. And so I think, you know, what I found is you top, stop taking everything so seriously, you know, you don't hold on to opinion so strongly anymore because you realize it's just like a construct of the mind and it's probably coming from some egoic position. You feel you have to defend for some reason because if someone challenges your opinion, well, they're challenging my whole persona. But if you know that you're not that persona, you can have fun with opinions. You can throw them out there, but you don't care if they get challenged or shot down. You can change them up on the fly. You don't hold on to anything too tightly anymore you know and so that's like the real gift of any of this stuff is a sense of freedom and ease in the world like not taking yourself so fucking seriously all the time (laughs) so if you find someone who claims to be a spiritual master and they're really uptight 
you know, maybe question, you know, have they experienced what it's like to, to be an ant or to be the cosmos, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's so huge. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, I think that, and, and that's really, I think a sickness that, that so many people are dealing with in this time is, is that, oh. that extreme attachment to my belief you know, and, and I mean, I always use this example of like Facebook, you just have to go on Facebook, or at least my feed <laughs> to see the insanity. I mean, maybe it's because I'm from New York, and that's, you know, an extreme, but it's, if you don't think what I think, then, as we've seen throughout history, eventually that road leads to I can murder you, because I'm so justified that my belief is truth that anyone who is outside of that belief is evil and therefore I can murder them. And I mean, that, that mentality, it's, you know, we, we uh, obviously we don't often take it to that extreme, but once we begin to identify with that way of thinking, it inevitably leads to the extreme. Well, and look, even, even, you know, not even taking to that extreme, what, empowers someone to go on someone else's feed or post and tell them that they're a complete piece of shit, that they don't deserve to live. Even just that kind of abuse um, is enough to cause harm, you know? And the person doing that isn't happy anyway. You know, they gave, may get some kind of like thrill from attacking or calling out people or arguing with people on the internet, you know, something that seems so benign, but it can cause real harm. And of course, uh, an attack on someone, a physical attack on someone else or a genocide or something is the most extreme example of that. But I think what has really been revealed to us, especially in this past year, because everyone's online all the time now and everyone's on these corporate social media platforms um and so what you're just seeing is more of that being revealed that like you said the over identification with the persona with the position with the individual and of course in order to to defend that concept of self that individual you have to create an other because that's what defines you as an individual. You know, it's like you have to split into a duality. If you start to understand that, you know, we're all in this together, then you may not have a leg to stand on, you know. And that's kind of the big danger of getting deeply into yoga or plant medicine is it can pull the rug out from under you and leave you feeling completely adrift in the world. And I think that's why we need the aftercare. You know, it's the blessing, but it's also the curse because we live in such an individual-focused culture that to be someone who isn't so invested in keeping up appearances, keeping up uh, the phony persona, can leave you feeling like a, an outsider, you know, uh, can leave you feeling like all alone, like if you don't want to participate in the social media charade and, uh, you know, only take the best looking photos of yourself and the best meals and you're always having a good time here and like, you know, look at me on the beach in Tulum. Like, yes, you have no idea how I could ever afford this and I don't want you to know that I'm $40,000 in debt right now. You know, it's all this complete uh, bullshit reality. Um 
that uh, this past year has just gotten completely out of control, you know. So I, I got off Facebook. Uh, my profile's still there collecting dust because um, apparently I need to have a Facebook account to be logged into some of the other things that I use. So it's there, but I don't use it. Um, and very uh, using things even like uh, Instagram, which I find far less problematic, even using that less, uh, just feeling a kind of... Um, a disinterest in creating a persona and then because once you create that persona you got to keep it up it's like you got to feed the beast man and uh it's fucking exhausting you know so i'd rather put my focus on creating meaningful content that's somehow instructional for people uh, rather than creating a persona that i can then use to sell um some nonsense you know latest uh handstand tutorial or something you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Am I showing my cards too much here? <laughs> We're on like the second hour or something. You got me loosened up. And it's it's Mercury's day, so I might the trickster might come out and play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's that's a really important point you brought up too. And you know, I mean, obviously everything we say is, is through our own lens of perception. So it, it has to be taken with with a grain of salt. But I mean, certainly from my experience that that kind of mentality you were pointing to of, you know, kind of attacking and otherizing people, as you said, it, it, it almost always comes from a very deep place of unhappiness. And, uh, you know, through, through that way of being, we somehow get this, this sense of, of increasing my own worth of increasing my own, you use the word ego, you know, my, my, my ego is fed by that, that act of fighting or that act of, of otherizing someone. And while it seems like that, that's somehow making me feel better in the end, it's actually coming from a place of deep unhappiness and it's ultimately leading to a place of, of an even deeper unhappiness. And, and that's one of the, the fascinating things I find about plant work is it does seem to offer a very powerful way out of that, which I think is why so many people are, are being drawn to it. But then also, like you said, yeah, you know, and it, it's something that's, that's important to talk about is, you know, always the hero's journey. It's never easy. <laughs> it's never the Hobbit left his cave and he found the gold and he lived happily ever after. It's he, he has no, he, to go he, into the cave and, and he had to destroy the, the gold. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think, uh, um, the Hobbit is like the kind of anti-hero, you know, he's not the, the buff knight in shining armor going to save the princess. You know, there's no hottie waiting for him after he went on his journey, you know. And I think so I think that kind of like deflates that whole uh hero's archetype uh somewhat, which I think it may need some deflating in our current culture. I think there's a lot of people who are identifying themselves as uh, heroes, as saviors. Um and so you know, you talk about plant medicine, how it can like help with that, you know, help uh, release you from the prison of your mind and, and uh, your sense of self. Uh, but, you know, I think Stan Groff said it, right? Like that psychedelics are nonspecific amplifiers. And I found that to be the case, um, that it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it ends up amplifying the egoic construct, which may not be healthy. And, you know, just to say the word ego in our kind of new age idea of it gets a kind of a bad rap. You know, the ego is a bad thing. The ego is something to get rid of. 
Ego just means I. So is whatever uh, it makes up your sense of self. So if that's based on some false persona that you're upkeeping to impress people or whatever, you know, Mr. Nice Guy, so you don't become the object of attack, whatever that phony persona is, that could be your sense of I. Uh, but uh, it could also be, you know, someone who really just knows himself, knows all the shadowy parts and knows all the light, wonderful parts, is more of a whole person. That could be reflected as the I, as the ego. So I'd, I'd rather talk about persona, which means the mask, uh, which is what we often put in front of who we really are. And often, you know, like social media is a great vehicle for doing that because you can construct any kind of persona you want on social media and it's... Uh, can be difficult to get found out if you're uh, if you're careful, you know. Um, so all that to say, I've seen it work in the opposite way too. So where people don't become liberated from, you know, their unhealthy ego, whatever, whatever you want to say, um, it doesn't. It's not. Uh, it's not something that makes you instantly not an asshole. Uh, so sometimes people get really inflated and grandiose. So you could have an experience, kind of experiences which I've had. I remember one Santo Daimi ceremony I had where we're standing in the circle and it was a St. Michael work. So it was dedicated to St. Michael, who's like this fucking kick-ass warrior angel, you know? And I remember sitting there in a circle and I had this feeling of becoming like St. Michael. I felt these like giant wings come out of my back and I grew much taller like I'm not a, I'm a medium sized person, right? So it's something for me to feel as taller, taller than all these Americans, uh, you know, who are always six feet or more and these giant wings spread out and they envelop this circle as if to protect them. And I felt like so fucking powerful and just full of juice, you know? And that was a healing experience for me to have as someone who has always struggled with um, feeling good about myself, feeling worthy, uh, feeling strong and powerful. You know, I grew up a, a little small sensitive kid in a in like a culture of brutes, you know, uh, so I took a, <laughs> I got a lot of bruises back then and that stuck with me into my adulthood. So that was a healing experience for me to feel that, you know, I too can embody this power and sense of being able to protect others and to hold them and stuff, right? But I could have walked away from that thinking, holy fuck, I just channeled St. Michael. I'm a fucking kick-ass shaman now, you know, something like that. And so it goes both ways. So we get into the topic of like, well, uh, how do you avoid that, right? And um, how do you like uh, positively integrate some of these experiences? Because I could have integrated that into a way that just made me more inflated and full of myself, right? Um, and so I think that's where like doing things in community or being in relationships of equals where other people aren't afraid to call you out on your bullshit <laughs> and you respect them enough to actually listen, <laughs> right? Super important. If we do this kind of work in isolation or we do it in a bubble um, where 
the kind of the mini culture that we're in. So maybe that's a retreat center or an intentional community or something in Costa Rica, uh, where it's all these people who think alike. And that's why you come together where you just kind of feed each other's grandiosity. Um, you know, so it's really important, like the context in which we do these things, because it has the potential to just amplify the parts of us that, uh, are the parts that are causing all the problems in our life and, and problems for ourselves and for other people, you know, like power tripping, uh, the, the shaman or the yoga master who uses his power to manipulate the young and the beautiful, you know, even when he's become old and flabby. <laughs> it's an age-old story, man. So... Uh, you think that's where traditionally you use this word, like the, the wholeness of a shaman is really embodying this this lived experience would be so important is to, you know, to also bring that, that other side of like when someone's ego does become inflated or their, their persona to, to kind of metaphorically slap them or literally slap them. I mean, that's also like the Zen tradition, right? Is you, yeah. you hit the guy with a stick or you give them a, a bigger glass or you tell but them look, to take a break. Or... That's a whole um, kind of power structure set up in something like that. The Zen situation you're talking about, like, who is that guy with the stick? Who is he to be slapping me? You know, maybe who's around to slap him? Well, probably no one because he's at the top of the pyramid, right? And so one of the things about the shaman, you know, shaman aren't uh, the most whole and integrated and enlightened beings, you know? Uh, they're human beings who have one foot in this world, one foot in the other world. And things can get really sketchy, especially around conventional norms, Right. So we shouldn't expect the shaman to be a completely pure and like pure of intention, pure of action, that kind of person. I don't I think it's a real mistake to expect that of your shaman. I think you should expect your shaman to be kind of a, a slippery character. You know, it's like they work a lot with the archetype of the serpent. And the serpent is, you know, a creepy crawly. It's a, it's a squiggly thing that likes to hide under rocks and stuff, right? But what happens in a traditional society is the shaman is embedded in a tribe. And the tribe is the one that keeps the shaman in line, not the shaman keeping other people in line. So if the shaman starts to act out in a small community, he's going to get kicked out. You know, no one's going to go or they're going to starve him out by not going to see him anymore. Right. So that's what kind of keeps the shaman in line in that context. Now, you take that kind of trickster type character. You know, I mentioned it was Wednesday. It's like the day of Mercury, Hermes and the trickster. So good we're talking about this. I'm glad it came up. But you take that that character, that shamanic personality, out of that context, and you put him in a position of power, and there's nobody to keep him in check, that's when we run into problems. And we see that, uh, <laughs> you know, throughout the Amazon, but man, it's everywhere now. It's gone worldwide, you know, just like the <laughs> the kind of manipulative uh power abusing guru went worldwide, you know? So that's what I'm talking, you know, it's, so it's, it's the context in which we do these things. So myself as someone who wants to heal and grow, but also the context in which the shamanic practitioner is working, you know, if they're out on their own outside of their community, who knows them from birth, right. And like their uncles and aunties are there to give them the slap on the head or tell them to straighten up. They, they're outside of that context. They got free reign, 
And we've seen it, you know, really hitting close to home up here with a Peruvian shaman who came up and started to abuse women because he was like totally out there on his own and everybody he met just worshipped him, you know, who made that mistake of expecting him to be some pure and enlightened being with only the purest of intentions. And it's like, wait a minute, he's trying to get in my pants? What do you mean? He's a shaman. <laughs> No, he's a guy with one foot in this world, one foot in that world, man. And so be careful, you know. So you, you mentioned this idea a couple of times of integration, and, and that seems to be something you're, you seem to be quite passionate about. Why, why do you think that's so important? Or how, maybe how would you even describe that to start? <laughs> well, first of all, the way that it's been talked about in the psychedelic world um, so far, I think has been really kind of simplistic for the most part. I see integration as a lifelong process. So for me, what that looks like is getting to know all the parts of myself and understanding them as a whole, that all those parts are working together. You know, if I bring them all online, you know, if I make myself aware of all these hidden parts of myself, you know, the ones I like and the ones I don't like, bring them all online, then I can start to be in relationship with this kind of uh, this multitude within, you know, one person calls it the internal family system, but it's, it's more than a family, you know, it's, uh, it's all of these archetypes living within us, all of these different uh, modes of being, all these ways of seeing the world and interacting with it, all of these potentials, uh, you know, positive and negative, all live inside of us, whether we like it or not. So my work personally, is to try to become as aware of all of that as possible. So that, uh, not so that I can control any part of it, but so that I know myself better. And I can understand why I act a certain way in different situations. Um, and if I have access to all the parts of me, then maybe I can act in the most appropriate way according to the situation. So I can call on my inner warrior when I need to go out there and get some shit done, you know, and maybe uh, stand my ground against somebody who's trying to create havoc or harm in my family or community or to me personally, you know, so I need to call on that warrior, but I don't want to live in the warrior. I don't want to over identify with that energy. You know, when I'm with my wife in bed, uh, I want to call on the inner lover. You know, I don't want to be a warrior in bed. Uh, there's times when I want to be like a mystic, you know, and I want to connect to the great mystery. So if I'm in warrior mode, I'm not going to get there, you know. Um, so it's about like a sense of wholeness, but the wholeness is not one coagulated thing. You know, it's not one homogenous, pure ball of ectoplasm or something, you know. It's a multitude of parts, but having the ability to see it as a whole and to see how all these parts interact with each other and influence the way I think and the way I behave, that to me is this whole lifelong process of integration. And plant medicines, psychedelics can be a really useful tool in that because it can show us the parts that we've been hiding from, right? Uh, and I'm saying that like the positive parts as well as the parts that uh, – cause harm or are less helpful. So a lot of people are disconnected from their sense of joy and creativity, you know, uh, things that we might associate with the inner child or the divine child archetype. Uh, 
A lot of people are connected from that, from their own inherent goodness, uh, joy and wonder of life, you know. Um, some people are disconnected from the inner tyrant, you know, the fucking uh, diseased king who's become impotent and just wants to, like, ruin everything for everyone, you know. Like, I'm miserable, so I'm going to make everybody miserable too. You know, the whole kingdom's going down. Like the <laughs> one character in the Game of Thrones, you know, who gets kind of possessed by this demonic spirit. Uh, so I want to be in relationship with him too, because I want to keep him in check. You know, I want to recognize when he comes forward. You know, I want to maybe uh, plug into another channel. You know, <laughs> so that for me is like the integration. It's not about a oneness in terms of becoming one thing or one coherent uh, identity or something, but it's about coming into relationship with as much of myself as I can. So then that's one part of it. That's like the inner part. The other part of it to me is how do I integrate into my family, into my society, into my culture? How do I integrate into the world in a way where I feel like I can maintain my authenticity and still get what I want, uh, you know, and do what I can to, contribute something, uh, to give back. I had a really pivotal experience in, uh, at the temple of the way of light, I think actually, um, a couple of years ago where I was wrestling, you know, I was really loving being in the jungle and I felt completely fulfilled there. You know, I was living in a, a magical place where we did regular rituals and there were communities that formed around that. So it felt like really like meaningful and satisfying a really deep part of my soul that longs for that, you know? And I don't want to romanticize it as like the way things used to be because life was really hard for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, right? But having that connection to the mystery, having that be like just a regular part of life, you know, that's kind of take it for granted where... I don't feel like I have to moderate the way I speak about things to anyone, um, you know, and people get it when you're talking about these magical experiences and, you know, there's something like really, really attractive about that. Uh, so there's a part of me that was wrestling with like, well, maybe I just uh, get Debbie to pack everything up and we just move to Peru because man, it just feels so much better than North America right now. But I had this uh, ceremony where I got this like clear directive that my dharma, my job in life, because I had the ability and the privilege to go have these kind of experiences in these magical places, my job, because I guess I'm, I'm cut out for it maybe, was to take some of that medicine back north where it was most needed for the people who couldn't make that journey, whether because they were too afraid or they didn't have the money or the means, whatever, right? But because I was able to do this, it was my job to, to take it back. And so I got this vision of the worker bee, you know, the little dumb drone bee, whose only job is to go get the pollen, bring it back to the queen, you know, and to um, contribute to the building of this, uh, this community. Um, and, you know, he's no fucking hero. He's just doing his job, you know, <laughs> like he can do it. So he's the one doing it. 
and that's the vision that I got, you know, it's like, be like that worker bee, you know, come down here. It's like, get a taste of the nectar, get a taste of that medicine, and then bring it back to where you come from. Because I'm especially qualified to integrate myself into the communities I come from. Uh, and then if I do that, then the medicine that I carry can be shared with other people. You know, I can integrate myself back into the community I come from much better than the shaman from Peru, who's going to be the subject uh, of everyone's projections, you know, and, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, I don't know how we got there, but here we are. Is yeah. to be like the worker bee. And uh, so integration. Yeah. So those two aspects, becoming more integrated myself, knowing my whole self, but also integrating what I get from the medicine uh, back into the work I do in the world. You know, so whether that's volunteering or teaching or, or whatever, you know, trying to do some kind of service work uh, in a way where I can still maintain a living doing it so I can put more energy and focus into it. Mm-hmm. And that's the big challenge for me is like, how do I be a a mystic, a kind of shamanic person in this soulless, materialistic, capitalist society, you know? Even to engage with the kind of um, mainstream yoga culture is a real challenge for me. Um, and then how do I make money doing it? So I got to, uh, to some extent, play the game. So I just try to do that in a way that... Uh, is authentic as authentic as I can be at any given time. Uh, so not like put up a bunch of smoke and mirrors, not claim to be something I'm not, but hopefully by sharing myself in a way that feels real and authentic and, and open uh, and transparent, um, that that's going to attract the right kind of people who don't want just another celebrity guru uh, who want an actual relationship with someone who's been through some shit, who's lived a life, had a career, been married, um, gone through a midlife crisis, like awakening, <laughs> awakening to my own suffering, <laughs> not like some grand awakening that came later, maybe, you know, in little bits and pieces. But the initial awakening was just awakening to how fucking miserable I was and how I had a large part in that, you know. So in that was like, ah, oh, fuck, you know, what have I been doing? I can't blame this on anyone else but myself. But the flip side of that is, well, if I'm the one who's creating the suffering, I'm the one to like dig myself out of it too. So if I can become uh, clear and connected to myself enough to make better decisions in my life. Um, but sometimes our path is a difficult one, like trying to make it as a yoga teacher and a village shaman in a, in, <laughs> in like the fucking land of Costco and uh, I don't know all the other stuff, you know, you're from America, you, you know, <laughs> you, do you feel in, in Canada, there's, there, there, there's a change of, of perception. People are becoming more open to these shamanic ideas through, through yoga, through, through plant practices. Um, <laughs> um, I haven't taken a poll. <laughs> but what I do is just kind of like try to pay attention to what's going on out there in the zeitgeist. Um, so Canada, you know, it's a it's very small population spread out over an enormous geographic area. So what that does is um, 
things get more dispersed. There's more room to breathe. Things are less kind of uh, concentrated and intense than they are in the U.S., right? And I think that's what makes the U.S. such a powerful and explosive entity is it's got this uh, real mass of people concentrated, you know? And go to a city like New York or something, you're never going to have an experience like that in Canada. Um, so it's it's a little harder to get the read on what's happening in Canada. But, you know, generally, we live outside of the city. We live in a really small kind of rural place on the ocean in a coastal rainforest. So people are super chill. And people are really open about things like plant medicines and yoga and stuff. You know, it's one of the reasons why I live here is because I can really feel at home here. You know, even at, at the larger mainstream culture, feeling a little out of sync with that most of the time. But you can find these pockets and there's kind of more of that pocket here on the West Coast, you know, especially because we happen to be on an island. So there's that extra element of being disconnected from the mainstream, the mainland. Um, so I find out here people are really open to it. You know, every other person's got a yurt in their backyard and there's um, plant medicine ceremonies going on all the time. There's lots of kind of loose and easy hippie yoga out here. Nobody takes it all too seriously. Um, they do that in Vancouver and in Toronto and stuff, but uh, not out here. Um, so there's a softness to this life. There's kind of a ease and openness to a lot of the people. I think maybe in a larger concentration than in other places. So you might liken it to um, maybe uh, in the U.S., something like a, a little town in Vermont. You know, I find that area, the the Northeast, as well as the, the Northwest, um, California, the South, things get a little intense. People start to take themselves really seriously, very money-driven. I find like in these green places, especially if you're on the coasts, people uh, just become more chill. They're more relaxed. They're more kind of natural people, you know? Um, so your question was, are things changing? Or are they, I think there's more interest in the mainstream as there is everywhere else in the world right now uh, for psychedelics. You know, yoga, it's the same old thing. It's a, it's kind of like the Western idea of yoga now just being propagated through Zoom classes, which is even worse. Um, but like with psychedelics, you know, um, we're getting a lot of attention just like you guys are uh, for clinical studies, uh, you know, the whole thing, MDMA for PTSD, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's becoming like kind of corporatized here too. And there, there are certain players trying to grab the ring of power and be influencers and be the ones who dictate what voices are going to get platformed. All that same shit's going on up here too, as it is in the U.S., just on a really kind of smaller uh, level, you know, it's like Mayberry up here. You know, we have a big psychedelic conference in Vancouver, and you compare that to what goes on in San Francisco or Horizons in New York, and you're like, oh, it's like kind of down home. It's unpolished. There's no real slicksters, you know, unless we import them from the U.S. Um, and I like that about Canada. Is you know, we're like we're really kind of hosers up here. We're uh, you know, we can be a little. Um, coarse and unrefined. I think it's because people are just not so worried about maintaining that kind of slick, polished persona uh, that gets you a long way in the, in the U.S. market, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Like you look at our, uh, <laughs> there's always a funny thing. I lived on a border town just across um, the river from Buffalo and Niagara Falls, New York, like real blue collar area. But we got uh, American stations, television stations. Um, so you look at like Canadian television and you see like just the kind of vibe of the the talk shows or the news shows or whatever and the kind of people who are presenting um people with kind of like bad haircuts you'd see like overweight people you'd see uh one station in in toronto actually had the most diverse range of presenters i'd ever seen then or since you know back in the 80s there was the weather guy was an indian guy in a wheelchair um you know harry hussein and he's like stuff you'd never see and then you click over to the u.s channels and it's like these max headroom like robotic like polished like everyone's chiseled jaw and big tits and big hair and all this kind of thing it was such a like an image conscious thing and everything was like so polished and slick up here we're just like you know we're a little goofier you know just have a look at the trailer park boys that ain't a big exaggeration for what it's like in most places in canada <laughs> so um all that to say Things are like kind of proceeding as they are elsewhere, but on a much smaller scale up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So you you released a book. Was that last year it came out? Mm -hmm. And uh, what was uh, what was the story behind that? It's called Yoga and Plant Medicine. And yeah. is is that is it really just kind of a story of, of your life? And were you no. was that something you were hoping to help like with with the uh, integration or is just something you always felt called to do and you you put the words down to paper something i didn't always feel called to do uh i don't contrary to what this uh podcast might suggest i don't really love talking about myself so much hopefully i'm talking more about what i think about other things than about my own origin story or anything like that i know you've got me to say a few things and I'm grateful for that because I think it helps um, help people understand where I'm coming from. Uh, so it's useful in that. Um, but uh, so I didn't imagine myself ever writing a book. Uh, it was something that was like really, um, really frightening. You know, the, the idea of writing a book that just sounds like such a big deal, let alone a book about, you know, my own experiences. So that book, it was like, at the culmination of a lot of things, that whole story I told about going through the Santo Daimi, getting into yoga, following these two paths, going into the jungle, seeing even uh, deeper connections between yoga and ayahuasca, particularly, but other psychedelics too. Um, but really seeing all of those things. And then um, that kind of like culminating, it was like a lot of uh, understanding became resolved in me you know there wasn't like a tension anymore between like okay like i'm doing the yoga but am i like a plant medicine person and like do these things belong together and you know and how do they live together and should i keep doing plant medicines for the rest of my life or is the yoga enough and all these kind of like tensions that i was with for years just kind of resolved and um i was like my yoga is uh, is shamanism and so if i do my yoga every day i'm helping to keep that healing process going you know that really gets catalyzed with a strong plant medicine or more than the plant medicine itself but that whole ceremony around it right the singing and the intention and the community all of that that whole experience 
what that can catalyze. How do I keep it going? Well, because the yoga is working on the same levels, you know, Yasli Shaman is like, well, what's actually going on? Like, what's the ayahuasca doing? What are you doing with the singing? And they're like, well, you know, a lot of people's problems, whether it's physical illness or mental health issues, is caused by these energetic blockages. You know, that's the way they talk about it. Um, caused by these shocks, you know, that get kind of lodged in our energetic body. And that manifests through physical disease and pain or mental anguish. So they work, they don't work at the specific symptom itself, but they work at the underlying problem of correcting that energetic imbalance or disturbance. And that's exactly how Hatha Yoga works. It's all this thing, it's getting your energy straightened out, you know, clearing the channels so the energy, the prana can flow freely. And if that's happening, well, you're more in that natural state. You're healthy, uh, you're responsive, you're, you're present, uh, you're open. You're virile, you know, you got some life force coming through, right? Um, so it's working the same way. So having that understanding, it was like, okay, well, I just, I stick with my Hatha yoga. Uh, and when I feel like I need something, you know, if I feel really blocked and it's just not moving, you know, no matter how much pranayama I do or whatever, then I can go to the, the plant medicines for that, you know, um, so it was like at this point of resolution, I was like, you know what, I got to talk about this because I didn't see any other prominent yoga teachers talking about it. You know, when I would meet them and talk to them, you know, we'd always have a conversation in the car after the workshop and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're in ayahuasca too. Oh man, I have some great ceremonies down in Hawaii or whatever, but they'd never really come out and talk about it um, explicitly. And certainly I never heard a lot of people talking about the similarities or the complementary aspects of yoga, hatha yoga, and plant medicine, shamanism, you know. So I was like, well, I don't see it out there. So I guess I'm, I should tell my story and, and kind of uh, bring forward some of the things that I've discovered. Um, so that's what led to it. And it was not something I wanted to do, and it wasn't always an enjoyable process. It was one of the hardest things I had to do. Like it's a 112-page book. It's a little book, man, but it was like climbing a mountain at times. Uh, so it took me about a year. And uh, yeah, self-published it uh, last November. I didn't even bother even thinking about finding a publisher or anything. I've always been a DIY kind of guy. Um, and I have, you know, graphic design capabilities. So I didn't want to have to run it through any other filters. You know, I wanted to kind of give people the straight goods as I experience them. So yeah, I put it out last year and did a little tour before all the COVID stuff hit. And uh, it's out there in the world now. So it's living its own life. <laughs> so it's nice to talk about it. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's basically, it's, it's like little excerpts of, of your life and your path and, and what yoga means and the, the interconnection with, with uh, shamanism and plant medicine. So the book, yeah, it's, um, what I didn't want to do was just share a bunch of trip stories, right? So I, I picked a couple experiences that I think helped uh, give people an idea of how I came to see some of these connections and how, you know, I really wanted to illustrate how the yoga and plant medicine worked together in my life. So I share something of um, the struggle I went through that brought me to yoga and plant medicine in a deep and intentional way. 
Um, but I don't dwell a lot on that stuff. Um, and then, so it's, yeah, there's a few stories like that, these kind of pivotal experiences I had. And then there's other, there's other kind of like mini essays that, uh, bring up some of the history of yoga, some of the textual references like you're talking about, um, just some of the things I discovered in my, my search for the roots of yoga. Um, and yeah, I made it short and sweet because, you know, I find, uh, <laughs> too many like spiritual self-help type books are just way too long. And I don't know who decided that, a book needed to be at least 250 pages, but it seems like that's some kind of unspoken rule. And I got to tell you, very few of those books I've ever actually finished because I usually find, uh, but like the second or third chapter, it starts becoming very like either self-indulgent or incredibly um, redundant. You know, it's like, okay, hammering the same idea home. It's like, I can't believe you go into a, a bookstore and there's like two giant um floor-to-ceiling shelves full of books on how to meditate it's like sit down shut the fuck up <laughs> and, or like now it's like it's like i think part of the consumerism we just create more and more products and in order to keep people in uh consumer mode we gotta pretend like there's more for them to learn right and that in the learning is going to be some kind of uh healing or enlightenment or revelation um and i think that's why i like the yogis and the shamans because they're usually people of very few words. It's all about learning through direct experience. And so you need to find a good teacher in order to show you how to practice yoga so that you can have the experience. You don't go to them and ask them about the, the secret of life uh, or the answer to the mystery. They just say, well, do this and let me know what you find. And I think it's a lot with the good shaman, you know, they're not going to be the ones leading the, um, the webinars and doing the talking tours, you know, they're the guys who are just so chill and at peace with themselves that uh, they don't have a lot to say. Because when you get down to it, I don't think there is a lot to say, you know, we love to make things way more complicated than they are. Um, and we like to try to define things that are undefinable. And that keeps us like chasing our tails, like, uh, like dogs in the yard. Um, so I wanted to keep the book short and sweet and just give like kind of the straight goods, you know, like just enough to, to help people see these same connections and maybe get them interested in a different approach to yoga and maybe also a different approach to plant medicine. Cause I think that's something I end up offering too is a, is a little alternative perspective to the whole, um, idea of plant medicine as it started to propagate in our culture. And I see a lot of similarity to what happened with the commercialization and popularization of yoga in the West, you know, which happened, you know, from like 1970s into the 90s. And then there was this huge boom where yoga studios cropped up on every block, uh, every corner that wasn't occupied by a Starbucks. There was a yoga studio. I started to see some of the same patterns in the plant medicine or psychedelic world. You know, as soon as we get our hands on something, we want to commodify it. And what that entails creates, uh, you know, a lot of trouble. Um, 
a lot of people who need to then become an authority or an expert or a master. Um, and then all of the aspiration to be that too, uh, to find that level of affluence or success or charisma. And so then you start selling it down the pyramid to everybody else through the, uh, the trainings and such. So it's this whole fucking merry-go-round um, in the spiritual, in the Western spiritual world, quote-unquote spiritual. Um, so I didn't want to feed that. You know, whenever I ask the shaman, I love to do this kind of research. I always ask a shaman a couple questions. I go, um, you know, with all the gringos that you see coming down here, thousands of them, some of these people have worked with thousands of people from the north or wherever. I say, what's the biggest problem that you see with these people? You know, like just between you and me, like, what's the straight goods? All of them so far <laughs> have told me, well, it's pretty simple, actually. You know, down here when we work with locals, it's pretty complicated. Uh, there's all these like... Um, ideas about witchcraft and sorcery and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you, you got the bad spirit from that tree that you pissed on the other day. Like, it's really complicated, right? It's like, with the gringos, pretty simple, actually. You guys think too much, you talk too much, you read too much, you watch too much TV. You live too much in your heads, not enough in your hearts. And I've heard variations of that from different people, from different traditions. Basic thing is, you guys think way too fucking much, and it's causing you a lot of problems. You know, all of your distress, if you just stop that, you'll find actually there's not much of a problem at all. Or at least you get a lot of clarity on how to solve the real problems in your life, like how to keep a roof over your head and feed your dog and things like that, you know? Um, but all these other problems, is all just a mess in your mind. So that's really great. I love hearing that. Cause I'm like, ah, oh, yes, cause this is the key to yoga too. It's like what Patanjali says, it's like, all of your suffering at the root of it is this confusion about who you are and this inability to quiet your mind, to like see things more clearly, right? So I love that. And then I ask, uh, you know, what do you think uh, we should do in the ceremony? You know, because you hear a lot of things, right? You ask like a Western facilitator and they'll be like, surrender to the experience and this kind of thing, right? <laughs> But that's not what I've heard from them. What I hear from them is, well, you sit up straight and you concentrate. Like, that's simple. And the way that I interpret that is, if we consider these things plant teachers, you know, if we revere them as great teachers, and I do, you know, I've, I've had the experience that, like, because these plants have been around a lot longer than us, they've learned a lot about how to live in harmony with other beings and with the planet, right? So I've had this experience that they are teachers, or at least they're opening us up to some deeper, older inner teacher within us. You know, like James Hillman calls it the, or Jung, I think, started it, but the million-year-old million man inside of us, you know. So whatever it is, whether it's the plant giving us that information or it's coming from within us and that's just helping to open it to us, um, I can't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> I got lost in this image of the million-year-old man inside. <laughs> Sorry, I was on a riff there. Um, oh, what do you expect? Sit up straight and concentrate. So the way that I interpret that is, yes, if we revere these things as plant teachers, well, do what you would do if you were meeting a teacher that you respected and revered in person. You wouldn't lie around on the ground and curl up in a ball and maybe go to sleep or whatever. No, you would like sit up, show respect, 
uh, be attentive and listen, you know, and try to like meet them halfway. You know, you show up with your intention and your attention and then you might receive something, you know. Um, so I thought that was very interesting and instructive. And of course, sit up straight and concentrate. Well, that's like what everything in yoga trains us to do is like be alert, pay attention to what's really going on. Do what you can so that you can have more clarity. So you're not so confused and making so many fucking mistakes that are just bunging up your life, you know, and messing up everyone that's got to live around you, their lives too, you know? So like, to put it simply, um, it's all about how to stop being such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, great, man. That sounds like a, a good quote to end it with. <laughs> I'll do the trailer for the episode. <laughs> episode 30 with Brian James, how to stop being an asshole. <laughs> no, Look, it's never done. The work is never done, my Know friend. That how to <laughs> how to stop being such an asshole? It's like you're at peak asshole right now. Well, there's a chance that you could be a little less of an asshole tomorrow, perhaps. You know. <laughs> so that the so that the seer can abide in his own peace. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. From time to time, just enough to give you a taste of freedom. Right. Yeah. Well, great, man. Is there, uh, is there anything else we, we didn't touch on that you'd like to, you'd like to talk about? Well, we talked about a lot. This is the, definitely the longest conversation maybe that I've had yet, uh, on a podcast. So, um, the only thing maybe is to point people to my, my website. So yeah. where I talk about my coaching work that I do and also have links to some of the yoga resources I've made over the years. So I've taken all of that experience and talent that I developed in the advertising world, and now I use my powers for good, as I like to say. So I put all of that skill into trying to create um, useful yoga resources to help people learn how to really practice yoga for themselves so they can be free of the kind of corporate yoga machine and the big mess that we've made of that. And so they can get a taste of something real and something that's personal to them. So I put a lot of time and energy into creating those resources. So you can find links to that stuff on my website. And I've got a new series that I'm actually publishing probably tomorrow or on the first, and it's shamanic yoga. So it's really in practice bringing these two traditions together in a way that I haven't really seen before. So what it looks like is basically we do a yoga practice is the way I was taught it, you know, the real goods, the stuff that works followed by shamanic journey with a drum. So I find that the yoga helps open us up. So opens up, uh, not just to receive information from the cosmos, you know, from the nature spirits or whatever, but also opens us up to, allow our imagination to flourish and allow us to access our visionary capacities, which I think um, are really stunted in our current world. You know, we're fed images all the time from outside and there's not, people often don't take the time to, to cultivate their own imagination. Um, we're such consumers and we get bombarded with images all the time that we're completely full of them. We're full of other people's visions. And so I find the yoga really helps to clear some of that shit out. Um, and what comes up then is your own creativity, your own visions for your life, your own visions of 
soul, whatever it is, is allowed to come forward. Um, and so that puts us in a perfect state to either journey with plant medicines or with a drum or rattle or chanting. So um, practically, what we've got is we've got a Hatha yoga practice followed by shamanic journey with a drum. And then also I give a couple examples of how you can chant Vedic mantra using rattles and drums. So some of the shaman's tools. So what I found in my playful exploration of blending these things is, wow, like I love chanting, but when I chant with the rattle and the drum, it's like, ooh, it helps me access something that I can see the shaman with the amazing ikaros and the shakapas uh, accessing, you know? Like really being able to communicate with the world uh, is something really special about that and the kind of images and feelings that that invokes in me. So that's what I wanted to try and share. It's something I've been sharing in person for years, and that's really the best way to do it, is have that transmission. We're together, we're in this together, and we create an amazing experience. But this lockdown has got me trying to think of um, – of other ways to work and it's not optimal it's not ideal um, but i i put a lot of time and effort into trying to make it the best experience i could to just facilitate people having their own experience so i'm getting a little better at it over the years but it's still so hard to do over that medium but i've done my best and so there's a series of uh i think six or seven videos that'll be coming out in the next uh, couple days and I'll have a link to that in the resources section of my website. So if you're interested in, um, you know, reading about my experience and some of these things get you curious about other aspects of yoga or plant medicine work, you can read my book or some of my blog posts. But if you want uh, something of the experience that has been just so remarkable, so nourishing, so inspiring, so life-giving to me, then you can try the practice. You know, and I'm just there to help guide you into that experience the best I can through a fucking recording and, you know, headphones and all that. It's, it's not optimal, but I think it's one of the best um, examples of that uh, that I've seen. And so you can check that out, brianjames.ca. And then I have my own podcast called The Medicine Path. It's sporadic. It uh, it follows my own curiosity and access to people I want to talk to. Um, I recorded a new one yesterday with a Jungian analyst. Um, it was really fun. So I'll, I'll be putting those out um, in a on an irregular basis. Um, so Medicine Path podcast on all the usual platforms. And there's an archive of past episodes on a Patreon that you can find a link to you on my website wonderful man well I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes and uh it's been a pleasure talking to you man it's always good to connect <laughs> and uh you know i i know from our time working together at the temple um a lot of people who who you taught really really benefited and I, I i i still am in touch with some of them today and and they just continue to have really amazing things to say so mm. uh I think anyone would, uh, would be in really good hands working with you. And I, I really respect your path. I mean, I, I think we share kind of similar paths and, uh, you know, just your curiosity and your inquiry, not only into yourself, but other traditions and other ways of, of, of just being and working, I think is really inspiring. And, and I think it's something that's really needed is, is really bridging all of these things together and showing the interconnectedness and, and that, you know, all of these things are, are potential pathways to, 
to what I think at the root of the human experience we're all looking for. So uh, mm. I, I commend you on that and, and really wish you all the best. Thanks. And something that I, I do want to leave people with is um, the benefit of committing to a particular path. So we have so many choices at our disposal now. You can go do a workshop on anything over Zoom, any given day. Uh, there's a lot to choose from. It can be really enticing to go uh, cherry pick things from all these different traditions. But what I find is it um, it dilutes your energy. Uh, you only have so much time, so much energy to devote to your practice, uh, your path, whatever it is, whatever medicine path you choose. But I suggest finding one and sticking to it. Like for me, it was, what would happen if I practiced yoga every day for a month? Like really sincerely, like really did it and did it at home, not just in a studio, what would happen? And I found it to be incredible. You know, it was like uh, having a secret of the universe revealed to me. It's like the user manual that I was never given as a child. You know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's a way. Here's a way to understand and transform myself. So I recommend that you pick a path at least for a while, for a good little while with a teacher who's connected to a real lineage, so whether you're into shamanism or yoga or whatever else, find something and stick to it for a while. Cut other things off for a while, you know. Um, you may come back to it later, but really devote your attention and energy to one path for at least a month or two just to see what's possible if you go a little deeper. So I hope some of what I do and put out there inspires people to go a little deeper into these things because there's a lot under the surface you know great brother perfect man well thank you Thanks. so much that, that was an amazing interview and uh, i hope people reach out to you and uh yeah one of these days we'll uh, we'll connect again i hope so man it's been great to talk to you i think part of this i could go on for another couple hours just chatting sure. to you because uh, <laughs> i feel that connection so thanks man yeah well thank you man brian james everyone <laughs> take care all right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoyed talking to Brian. I, I always really enjoy talking to him. He's, he's a great guy. He's a, a good friend of mine. And um, I really believe in support in, in his work and the message he's doing. So uh, check out his website for his book or uh, the, the course he's releasing. And, um, and yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, the next couple episodes... <clears throat> um, I believe uh, the next episode is going to be with, uh, hopefully, uh, I think Dennis McKenna is actually going to be coming on soon. And um, also my friend Emika, who's a, um, a guy from the Colombian Amazon. He does a lot of work with uh, Mambe and a lot of sacred plant medicines and uh, really an amazing guy. He, he's one of the people who I really consider a, a teacher of me and he's, he's taught me a lot. Um, and so, yeah, really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, it'll be in Spanish and my friend Claude, who was in one of the early episodes, he'll be translating that. Um, and then the following episode, I'm hoping will actually be with 
Matthew, who's the founder of the Temple, the Way of Light. So it'll be really interesting to bring him on and, and kind of talk to him a bit and uh, hear his story. So uh, those should be the next few guests. Thank you guys for all the support. Uh, to everyone who's helped out via via Patreon or PayPal, thank you very much. To everyone who's subscribed to the show, thank you. Um, if you're able to do that, go on patreon.com. You can sign up for tiers. That's a really amazing way to support the show. Um, and then you get something back, uh, early access to shows, Q&As, uh, bonus material, extended footage, things like that. So if you're able to do that, thank you very much. Um, and then also if you're able to go on the YouTube homepage and subscribe to the show, turn on the notification bells and like the video, that's a really big help. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating and a review. So thank you all so much. I hope you enjoyed this and I will see you all in the next next episode.